0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
2: Silly tales about ghouls chased away by garlic
3: and vampires shrinking from crosses. She kidnapped young girls and kept them chained to give blood. Blood for her to bathe in and drink. She bit them everywhere. No. And then she pushed white-hot pokers into their faces. And when they parted their lips to scream, she shoved the flaming rod up into their mouth. Help it, blood. Beautiful legs. Stop it! My arms. My legs. Worry, you're safe with me. I killed no one. Again. It's difficult to forget. Ah, you will. After a while, it'll only be the remembrance of a bad dream. And then the remains of a remembrance. More and more faint in your mind. I've seen many a night fall away into an even more endless night. Nights like last night. Who do you think I am? A kind of ghoul? A vampire? Oh, no, my dear. So many nights.
2: You think these ladies are something wait until you meet mother she's something else
1: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello! Also back in the booth is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. This week we are looking at Harry Kummel's Daughters of Darkness. It seemed a fairly ordinary night when Stefan and his wife Valerie, two young, ordinary, healthy kids on their honeymoon, stop in Belgium on their alleged way to England... Where they check into a nearly abandoned hotel. There they encounter the mysterious Countess Bathory and her assistant Ilona. From there, some strange things start to happen. Now, we'll be talking a lot about spoilers about this movie and maybe some other similar films from the era, so please be warned. Kat, when was the first time you saw Daughters of Darkness and what did you think?
4: Geo, Do you know, I don't know when it was that I exactly saw it. Um, It was a later one rather than an earlier one. It wasn't in my first batch of Euro cults, but I'm going to say about a decade. Um, It just completely floored me when I first saw it, because it was unlike... I mean, I'd seen a lot of other films kind of like it, you know, a few John Rollands, some Jess Franco's, but I'd not seen anything like Daughters of Darkness. And I think that's the, the thing about the film, even now, when people come to it, they're kind of blown away by the fact that it's just so tonally different. it's got a lot of the tropes associated with the genre, like if you know Hammer and if you know the more euro cult things, but it's totally unique, and it was at that point from that first
0: viewing that I just totally fell in love with it. How about you, Heather? You know the first time I was ever aware of Daughters of Darkness was uh Hauser video, and the town I grew up had a video copy where the cl- the cover was the close-up where the Countess is about to kiss Valerie and I knew it was a vampire film and I'd always look at it but I knew like okay this looks way too saucy. My mother is never gonna <laughs> So I didn't get to see it until I think like the late 90s when it came out. I want to say and I actually still have my VHS copy that was, uh, it was either Anchor Bay or Blue Underground released it. And at this point, of course, I had watched Dark Shadows and reruns. I was a big John Carlin fan on top of being like a fan of Euro horror and vampires. And so I I bought it sight unseen from Suncoast Video. And much like what Cat, what you were saying, I was blown away because it's, it really is its own creature.
1: I saw this one for the show. I don't remember if I ever saw it before. And I have to say that I watched it. I read your book, Cat, and then I came back to it, and I definitely appreciated it way more on the second time than I did on the first time. The first time, I missed a lot of stuff. I thought it was, you know, it's it's a little slower paced, but after I read your book, and then I mean, just God, I, I appreciate. Is it Delphine Seyrig? Is that how you say her name? Yeah. She is just amazing. And I didn't realize how many movies that I had seen that she was in and including Mr. Freedom, which is one of my favorites. And then seeing her completely different in this movie as opposed to the Mary Magdalene type character she is in Mr. Freedom with the big red hair and the, you know, the, the swimsuit and everything. Such a different performance and just a couple years apart.
4: She's incredible. I mean, she is absolutely incredible as an actress. And as I say a lot of times in my book, it's it's mainly Delphine that makes the film. I think if it had been anyone else, it would have just been a completely different story. It's all... The other actors are brilliant as well, but it's all her. It's like this strength. And it, she's not like any other female vampire that you'll see. And there's been a few recent horror films that try to emulate that, but don't quite get it. So, I mean, she really was unique, Delphine. There's never been anyone else like her.
1: When the whole package comes together with the music and the outfits and the, the uh, camera work, the cinematography, everything just kind of falls together in this film.
0: It is just a perfect film for me. And just, you know, speaking of Delphine, Kat, I'm so glad you said that. Because, you know, especially revisiting it for the show and rewatching it, um, because I I hadn't revisited it in a few years, is that I think she's got to be one of the best cinematic vampires ever. Like, the way that she slinks, the way that she's always got this kind of smile... Just, like, this total sort of predatory but charismatic. I mean, this is, you know, she should be, like, her name should be right next to Legosi and Lee.
4: Well, that part about the smile, because originally they were going to have her a lot more crueler and a lot more obvious, and it was Dalphine who wanted to play it all smiles. And I think it's just brilliant, because it makes the character so fucking sinister. Because she's got that maternal sort of thing in the smile, but she's just really cruel. And deadly. And I th- and that was totally down to her. That was her thing. That she didn't want to overplay it. She didn't... The way she does the-, the pauses and her intonations and the little gestures. I've never seen anything like it before or since in a vampire film.
1: I was really glad the way that you put things in context, too, as far as two big things that we're getting right at the beginning. We're getting a couple on their honeymoon in a train. And as soon as that train opens, I'm thinking of another vampire film that comes a few years later, Martin, and how that starts on a train. And then I'm also thinking of a a movie, another movie we covered on the podcast a few years back, which was The Black Cat, where, again, we've got the honeymoon couple on the train. And it just seems like such a motif that I never really realized was a motif. And then, of course, I start thinking about Brad and Janet, who are not necessarily on their honeymoon, but going to announce their engagement. They just got engaged. And the way that Frankenfurter drives this couple apart. And it's so similar in this whole idea of the vampire who seduces the male and the female in different ways and i like that in this film it's the woman that she's actually after because there are there's a huge history of lesbian vampire films and i know we'll be talking about that but this one really stands out for me as being one of the better ones
4: It's interesting, that motif, because I wrote about that. But it was Dave Pirrie in his amazing book on vampires. I can't remember when it came out. But he was the one who identified that, the honeymoon honeymoon trope. And it comes up, especially in the 70s, it became like a huge thing. I don't know if filmmakers were trying to comment on marriage or you know, patriarchy or whatever. It comes up in a lot of feminist-focused films. Um, but Velvet Vampire is one that also uses it, which came out the same year. And people always think the Velvet Vampire is like a Daughters of Darkness clone. It was a complete coincidence. There is no way that Stephanie Rothman could have seen Kummel's film before she made the Velvet Vampire, because it was almost... It was already in production being filmed as that was being released. So it's just one of those coincidences. It just seems to be something that's very relevant. You see it earlier on, but it becomes a massive thing in the set. Like you said, things like Martin as well. has all got these relationship contexts. And there's a lot of, um, I guess just looking at the social climate and the decline of marriage or feminist aspects of marriage blood spattered bride is 71 same year as daughters of darkness quite a few of them use it it's an interesting little trope though
1: when you pointed out uh blood and roses i think the uh vadim film which is doing the same thing i mean it's just yeah i'm wondering if it is the idea of and that's 19 what 60 whereas this one's 71 but yeah the whole idea of marriage being this a uh, sacred institution that is kind of crumbling and what can, what is that threat? And I love that it's a woman with power as the threat. And then there's the lesbianism as a threat. So it, it's such a nice thing too, as far as the idea of people getting their civil rights and women's rights, and then even gay rights. And it's just, it, I mean, the gay thing we'll definitely have to talk about more as we go along, but it, the idea of how, easily these couples can be split apart is is pretty fascinating as well
0: absolutely i think kind of a cool shadow that's in, in this film with uh, the character of Stefan, the John Carlin character, who's the, the groom, is I feel like and, and let me see what you guys think. I think sometimes the grooms and other types of films can be a little bit on their sort of cardboard box side, you know, sort of um, like I was thinking like Shiver of the Vampires, like the Roland film also kind of has the the newlyweds traveling theme. But um, Stefan is given a lot of like interesting shadows as a character. Too. And we even get kind of an interesting sort of peek into his familial history. I feel like you don't always get that. Like this is to me, it's that was one of the other things that just, I don't know, one of the many things that made this film just so good is is that, it. you know, there are tropes, but nothing, there's absolutely nothing cliche here.
4: No, you're totally right. Shivers does it, Bread Spattered Bride, which is a, d- a deliberate political statement about Francoist Spain, as much as the horror nerds hate me pointing that out because they don't want a Spanish history lesson, Aranda, when he made that film, uses the husband figure in that to represent Franco and patriarchal Spain and fascism. And so he's not even given a name. He's just called the husband. And he's despicable, but you are given no motivation for why he's despicable. He's just a very cruel, very horrible, oppressive man. And that uses a similar thing. Vampire comes in to the newlyweds. That's more about liberation from this patriarchy. But with Daughters of Darkness you get to understand why Stefan is like he is. And I think you're right, Heather, that's kind of unique as well. Because even in the Vamp- Velvet Vampire, all the focus is on the woman, usually. You know, the woman who's being seduced. Shivers of the Vampire, the, the new husband might as well not really be there because he's kind of just on the peripheral and he doesn't really get a character. So you're totally right.
1: Cat, in your opinion, what is Stefan's deal?
4: Hey Stefan. I mean, you've got the gay angle, which you've already uh, mentioned, and that was something that was just put in later on. He's obviously a very complex person with some sort of secret, because I love the fact that when you hear about Mother, you've given a spoiler alert, haven't you, obviously, so um when they talk about Mother, you instantly think it's a class issue. He's too embarrassed for Valerie to meet the Mother, and he comes from aristocracy, and you actually find out that Mother is a... A gay man, a very flamboyant gay man who's rich and Stefan is possibly either a classic homosexual or he's a kept boy and I think in giving him that angle first of all his masculinity is sort of questioned and he's sort of given this, this strange angle there. He's also got all this frustration and anger in him I think the other thing that he has in him is a cruelty which you see Bathory brings out in him, and it's it's like a real sadism, really nasty as well. And it's great because it's John Carlin because I always knew him as Bloody Harvey from Cagney and Lacey. Because <laughs> Dark Shadows wasn't a thing here, I only came to that later on. So I knew him as Harvey, and when I saw Daughters of Darkness, I was like, Jesus Christ, is that the same person? That cannot be the same person. You know, but Harvey's like very nice. And it was just to see him playing that. I think it just gives it that complexity. He's not just mindlessly picking on Valerie. He's very frustrated. He's desperate to keep this secret for whatever reason. I also like the fact that Kummel doesn't feel the need to really over explain it. He leaves it a bit ambiguous. So you can start to think about it, but there's a definite motivation there. Like, his life is just about... He's got this new wife and everything's great. And his life's just about to blow up in his face. So you can see he, as his character develops, he starts to change personality. And I think it's
0: wonderful. John Carlin should have gotten more film roles, like, especially after watching this, because he's so... He's such a great actor. And I remember him on Cagney and Lacey too, but with like on Dark Shadows, like, Willie... Like, is this character's constantly kind of getting beat up and emasculated? Like, you could almost make it like a drinking game. Like, oh, Barnabas is beating the shit out of Willie again. <laughs> like, take, take a swig, you know? And, uh, oh, no, Willie got shot again. Let's <laughs> take a swig. So so seeing him play this character that's completely on the uh, opposite side of, of Willie and, you know, Har- and obviously Harvey was so cool. And he's, you know just such an underrated actor and uh and from all accounts a really nice guy in real life so um i know there's a really cool story about him in your book cat that i don't want to spoil because if it, if it gets spoiled here you should be the one to do it
4: when i when i spoke to Danielle Weime about him i mean she absolutely loved him he's not been in good health and i know that's been well publicized the last decade or so he's been declining i know he's just been in hospital again because he's in his 80s now i think But Danielle's still in touch with him and she just thinks the world of him. She just absolutely adores him because he was such a sweetheart to her. Because, I mean, he was a lot older than her and she was coming to like, you know, she'd done a couple of films, but she was relatively new, going off to Europe on her own and as a young woman. And it was all very scary. Her first sort of quote unquote serious film and she's starring next to people like Dalphine Serig, who was you know, a big art house figure at the time. And he was just a sweetheart to her. And everything I hear about him is, is good. People just have a lot, to just say what a lovely man he is and everything. So it, it makes me sad that he's kind of fallen on hard times now.
1: I'm glad to hear that he's a nice guy in real life because Stefan is a real shit to me.
4: He's awful, but he's great. He, a car. Look, like Heather's right. He should have got more. Uh, Harry was kind of a bit because he was given Carlin as part of the finance deal and the only one he really wanted was Delphine and he got Delphine otherwise he wouldn't have made it and he was right to make that decision because it is Dalphine. so Carlin was given to him because of American finance but he was a bit resentful of Carlin because he was like oh well he's like a pop culture figure and he's a he's a really good actor as well
1: and I like that he looks a little older than Danielle, uh, than Valerie, because it kind of seems like now she's the the trophy wife and something to fight over as well.
4: Well, originally he was supposed to be the same age as her, and Harry said he got a photo of it. Oh, this is mean saying it, but it's in the book, I think. I think I quoted this in, in the book. He got his photo, and it was obviously from years before, and when he turned up on the set, he had the shock of his life. Because he was in his late thirties. And uh, so that kind of... But it works because it changes the dynamic. You need to believe that she's being dominated by a a more forceful or assertive figure. And so it works. I think if they'd had a really young actor, I don't think it would have been as believable.
0: Well, and especially because I think Carlin with his experience, like he conveys a lot of depth to Stefan, which yeah, he, you know, Stefan. Yeah, he's not not the nicest, <laughs> nicest husband. But, uh but Carlin's like innate, just sort of charisma on top of his, his talent. I mean, Stefan's a very compelling character. I mean, I don't, I never really hated him. I was always just like, I want to find out more about this guy, especially as you get more of a peek and it's a, his sort of um, sadistic leanings, especially, you know, when we have the reveal that he's researched the torture of the historical Cantus Bathory, which we'll, we'll tie all that probably into a minute here.
4: Oh, and the same thing, though. You can see why she's attracted to him as well. Because you're, you're right, he's so charismatic. Whereas the husband in The Blood Spatter Bride, played by the wonderful Simon Andrew, is just lovely in real life. is just so disgusting that you just think what the hell does she see in him? You just don't really understand it. But with John Carlin or or Stefan, you can understand why she's been wrapped up in this wonderful romance and been carried away because he's got that kind of edgy vibe about him, you know?
1: I love how he's like, let's take a day trip over to Bruges and we can see the murder.
4: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And his face when they're bringing the body out as well. It's just... It's such a little touch, but you just— but it comes, you know, a third of the way in, and you just think, "Oh dear, this guy's a bit of a nutcase."
0: <laughs> Especially with those glasses, like that—that's actually one of my favorite images of this movie. And there's a lot of them because there's so much great imagery here. But just the—he's the, wearing like these gold—they're Elvis glasses. Yeah, you call them Elvis glasses, and you know, and him and him and uh, Valerie just look like this golden. Early seventies couple together. Oh, they're great! Like, so they look like they've stepped out of a catalog. They just look all hip and beautiful. But then all of a sudden, and you have all of these people rubbernecking around them. There's just this like sense of chaos around these murders. And then of course we we get kind of the reveal of the um, the closest thing we get to a Van Helsing character in the film, the policeman or the ex policeman. He's retired.
1: The ex-policeman with that big white scarf. I was so noticing people's neckwear in this film. I mean, I don't think but you can help but do that because it is so prominent. And there's even that scene of Stefan pulling that thing over um, Valerie's neck. And then, you know, the Countess Bathory with her red scarf over her neck. There's just so much neckwear in the film.
4: Oh, the costumes are brilliant. Because Kamal originally wanted to do it as a period piece and just couldn't get the funding. He wanted the whole lot, 800 virgins and, you know, like, and the idea he came up with was, well, they were like, no chance. Well, how about we set it now? And there was a real move towards contemporary set vampire films in the 70s specifically. It's weird because it kind of got stuck in Victorian times, apart from things like Roger Vadim's Blood and Roses is one of the exceptions, Dracula's Daughter, the the sequel to Universal's Dracula. But most of them are set in this kind of Bram Stoker universe, And it took till the 70s for people to realize, hang on a minute, they're vampires, they're immortal. They can actually live in any time period. So what you got was a lot of low-budget filmmakers moving them into now. And that was, so it was like an economic thing. But Harry said, you know, if these are going to be immortal, what do we know of the immortal? You know, what is an immortal person in our perspective? It's a film star, and so he deliberately modelled Dauphine Serig on Marlena Dietrich and Ilona, played by Andrea Rau, on Louise Brooks. And she actually Rau cut her hair like Louise Brooks and loved it so much, she kept it like that for the rest of the time. Because he wanted something relatable, something that feels like a, a mortal to us. And there's so much detail in the costumes it's incredible the big feather boa collars and oh just i think that's just another part of it because even though they had such low budget for what they did you know just these few simple details really just send it up a few notches
0: they absolutely do and just that was god That was just such a brilliant decision on on his part because there's – I think it adds to sort of the – like a dark etherealism too about Iona and the Countess. It just kind of further adds to their mystique because it's – they're just instantly visually compelling, which they would be anyways because they're – I mean, they're physically beautiful, but the costumes just make it just like, wow, like, you know, you can't blame Stefan or or Valerie for like turning their heads and being like, whoa, who's (laughs) – who are they? <laughs>
4: well, when they turn up, because Delphine Selwig actually modelled herself on Dietrich in Shanghai Express. And when you first see her appear in the car, and she's got that veil on her face, she's framed like a von Sternberg-Dietrich shot deliberately. And then she does this walk into the hotel that's like this fast stride. And that was mimicked from Marlena Dietrich. Like Selwig took herself off and watched that film over and over again, and mimicked a lot of the mannerisms. And what you get is this amazing old hotel in Ostend, and these jet-set Euro-cult couple on one side, and then these two characters, you just sort of flounce in, looking like they're from golden age Hollywood, which I think is, I think that was one of the first things, when I first saw that film, and they turn up, I thought, This is not like anything else I've ever seen. This is something different.
1: Yeah, that whole idea of the hotel and the tourist town out of season. And we've talked on the show many times about hotels and just the ambiance that they bring. Or, you know, things like uh, Barton Fink, of course, The Shining, things like that. And then the, the rundown nature of it and just outside does not look like it's the most pleasant place. It looks like it's cold. It's overcast. So that... Adds to this almost like neo gothic atmosphere that it has.
0: There's something about, I think, hotels and horror in general that is really, I've always personally found like a really like attractive thing, like whether it's in like a road trip type situation or a gothic, more gothic situation. Because you think about like hotels are like pseudo homes, but they're pseudo homes that obviously you're constantly reminded is not yours. So there's automatically like a fault, like sort of, not a falseness. But, like a you know, even like a really nice hotel has to me like hotels have always had this aura about them of just like what ooh what's happened in this room? you know, like how many affairs or murders, or you know, of course, because my brain goes to really dark places constantly have happened, and so i love I love it when they're used in horror, and just, yeah, just uh, Kumal's like sense of detail, his eye for detail in this film is just it's like a like a master painter, just the the sets are perfect, and just sort of add it's it's they look so natural that hotel just looks like the most natural place for the countess to just kind of you know slink in you know especially when she's wearing that like silver like this amazing silver dress
1: oh my god i love that dress
4: she had to be sewn into that because it was so heavy that one
1: it's like a disco ball as a dress
4: it was so heavy though apparently
0: because it's all like metal sequins and stuff Man, she's—I can't think of any any human other than Marlene Dietrich herself that would look as just compelling in that dress as Delphine. Just such a, just such an iconic.
4: Talking of the hotel thing, though, because I think this is one thing that gets missed in modern Gothic. Like traditional Gothic is all about place. You often find they have a like they they call it in Gothic studies places character where the setting becomes as big as the actual people that are in the story. And you often find with a lot of later gothics, they forget about the importance of place. And I think Kumail gets it. it gets how important the place is as well. And so the fact that it all happens in this wonderful art deco hotel in this really isolated location, it just really adds to it. Because it's gothic, but it's a fresh gothic. He's bringing something new into it, but it's true. It's proper, true gothic. And you often find that detail gets lost or left out in a lot of the more modern things, which is a shame.
0: I loved how he incorporated some kind of like lesser known aspects of vampire, like traditional vampire lore. The obvious one is the running water because they have to stay away from running water. But one, and I want like I want your guys' opinion on this, because I kind of thought this was a nod to it, but we have this amazing scene where the Countess is knitting. Like, I don't know why, I, when I first saw that, it struck me funny. This is just this amazing-looking woman just knitting like a granny, like in <laughs> this hotel lobby. <laughs> it's just so great. But like one aspect of certain vampire lore is that um, vampires, like if you throw... A rope with a bunch of knots they cannot leave until they untie every knot and there's sort of a similar one with i believe like rice or seeds like if you if you throw like a bag of rice or seeds they can't leave until they count so a little you know i can see why the ocd nature of vampirism doesn't make it into many films (laughs) because nobody wants to see dracula counting a bag of rice i guess
1: that's where the count from sesame street comes from
0: you just blew my mind. Thank you. (laughs) But but I wanted to, I I kind of view her knitting as kind of like a nice little sort of nod to that. I could be completely wrong, but.
1: Well, and I'm also curious about the whole running water thing when it comes to them being at this seaside town and, you know, I've seen Nosferatu take a boat ride, but do regular vampires, can they take a boat and cross water or are they stuck to the land?
4: I think in traditional Gothic they can cross water, can't they? The water thing's a really interesting one because they don't. One thing I like that Cumor does is he doesn't really explain the the folklore. He doesn't have some character emerge who does like a, a Hammer Horror van housing and explains how to destroy the vampire, you know, like this sort of thing where they set it out like a guide. So you don't really know why Lona is so scared of the water and you just think, ah, you know, that must be why it is. You know, she might be destroyed. But then when she goes into the water, nothing happens to her. She's just, you know, screaming and writhing around. She's not all bubbling up and burning or, you know, like Dracula AD 1972 when... The guy falls in the bath and it's all melting. It's all that sort of thing. They don't do that. Avoids all that ridiculous over-explaining thing and leaves it just a little bit ambiguous. Because if you look at the violence in the film, it's all very human violence. It's even the way Stefan's killed. It's sort of an, an accident. And Alona is killed by accident. You don't have people having their throats bitten out or... And he did that deliberately, he wanted to sort of avoid all the obvious tropes. And I think that's another thing that makes it really special. You do get those people who are kind of like, oh, well, I don't like it because it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. But I think that's one of its strengths because it is doing something new in a genre that is very difficult to do something new in. Even by the 70s, so many bloody vampire films there's just so many like when you compare to the other kind of gothic monsters they've got to be top even over frankenstein and so it's a a difficult genre to innovate in Kimmel was consciously trying to do something new and achieve that just with all these little touches like the costumes and the hollywood things and the I'm not going to explain the folklore. I'm going to leave it all a bit ambiguous and I'm not going to have fangs. I'm. Delph- um, Danielle Wee May told me that when they may- were making it, they knew they were making something different because there were no fake teeth. There was no, you know, there was none of that, none of the usual props. So she said she knew at the time it was something different, something new.
1: It's like they don't even say the word vampire until 36 minutes in, and then I think they only use the word vampire maybe twice in the entire film.
4: And then they're sort of talking about the vampire in a in a kind of historical sense as well. So it's not even, you know, you don't get that kind of even when they're talking about Bathory. It's like if you were Countess Bathory, (laughs) it's sort of done in that if that was you but of course it couldn't be you but if it was then you know and it's all that that I love about it because it keeps it firmly in the fantastic. and I think Roger Vadim did this really well in Blood and Roses as well because Blood and Roses has got a bit of a is it or isn't it is this supernatural is this just someone who's mentally ill or you know it's got that going on I think if Daughters of Darkness owes a debt to one film alone, it's Blood and Roses, because it's it kind of comes from that camp. But the Fantastique, which is always really difficult to define, but it's like a fairy tale, like a gothic fairy tale. It's summed up, Tordorov sums it up as that moment of hesitation when you're not quite sure. So it's not like magical realism where everybody accepts that vampires exist which seems to happen in the bulk of horror films it's just taken for granted yeah we have these vampires blah 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 like nobody ever bats an eyelid it actually takes part in a universe where vampires aren't a thing and people even though they suspect something's not right they're not quite sure and it's such a subtle little thing but it makes for so much tension in the narrative
0: I get kind of tired with sort of especially horror fandom where people will just gripe about this wasn't done this way. And they just want explanations for everything. And it's like, listen, kids, vampires and zombies aren't real. So you can't apply science to it, okay?
1: We don't need the Frog Brothers to show up in every movie and explain the rules to us.
0: <laughs> I love the Frog Brothers. <laughs> the Lost Voice is amazing. That Kat, Kat, you and I already know we how much we both love that movie. Yes, don't diss the Frog Brothers. <laughs> or the Sax Man. But uh, <laughs> that it's nice. I agree. It's It's refreshing to have a film where not everything is explained. Like, you're given enough... In some cases, like whether whether it's the vampirism or Stefan's history, but it, you know nothing's over explained, and there's still like a mystery, which I almost think it's like part of the supernaturalism in this film is the atmosphere. Like there are things just beautifully and very smartly orchestrated to kind of give that air and that pall of like, yeah, something is obviously not. I, you know, what we think is normal in this world. But it's but it's hinted at, like, I think when when a director does that, it's kind of respectful, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, making us do a little bit of the legwork, which I which I really, really like. And, um and just like one of my favorite touches, because you keep thinking, because of course, you know, with the policeman, um you know, when he when he meets when we see him interact with the, the countess, they obviously know each other but we don't see him go full Van Helsing, which I
4: kind of like. That scene, the the just the chemistry in the scene between those two is incredible, where they're having this conversation in full view of the other guys who don't really know what's going on, and it's it, everything is in the subtext, and all you get in that scene is this one little flash where you see that she might not have a reflection in that compact mirror, it's like a split second and it's all kind of like, Oh, you know, and it's, I think the tension in that is incredible. You get it also in the scene with Stefan and Bathory when they're talking about Bathory's crimes and it's, it goes on and on and it becomes more and more claustrophobic. And uh, there's like quite a few moments of that in Daughters of Darkness where they're sat in this massive open space that's basically white but you get this like terrifying claustrophobia building because it's like this weird perverse sadism and and you've got Delphine, who's sort of saying this really horrible stuff but she's smiling that smile when
0: she does it and it's just, it's incredible. Well, and especially like I loved how she like would use her hands like like with her nails when they first start talking cuz she starts kind of just slowly like kind of inching down and it's like clearly like her and Stefan are bonding over their love of the sexual sadism of, <laughs> of the historic Countess Bathory's crimes and poor Valerie's freaking out because you know, her her husband and this strange, beautiful woman are just absolutely ecstatic about talking about girls' flesh getting shredded <laughs> and they're, you know, in silver pincers and all that. But it's so, it's so beautiful. And you're right, Kat, like the claustrophobia, Especially just the way, like, the camera work is so good in this film. It's so brilliant. And just how the shot just gets tighter and the editing, like the kineticness that's built up during it. All of these elements just make everything just so uncomfortable um, in a really, really great way. Elizabeth is
4: Elizabeth in Hungarian, but she was best known as the Scarlet Countess.
5: Imagine, she bled 300 virgins to death. Some say 800, a woman will do anything to stay young. But
2: drinking human blood.
5: She believed human blood was the elixir of youth.
2: Exactly. Do you know about her?
3: Yes, I've read of her. She kidnapped young girls and kept them chained to give blood. Blood for her to bathe in and drink. No. She hung them up by the wrists and whipped them until their tortured flesh was torn to shreds.
2: Oh, yes, that's it. And she clipped off their fingers
3: with sheer. No! She pricked their bodies with needles. Yes, yes, she tore out their nipples with silver pincers. And she bit them everywhere. No. And then she pushed white hot pokers into their faces and when they parted their lips to scream she shoved the flaming rod up into their mouths stop
2: it oh yes, yes, go on, go on
3: she pierced their veins with rusty nails and slit their throats
4: stop it so that their white bodies pumped out young blood over her naked skin stop it blood, beautiful, red
2: stop it her hands and her arms and her legs stop it and her face stop
4: it
3: but both of you, what's gotten to you, Stefan? What have you done to him? you both.
4: It also has though um, a narrative purpose because if Harry could have done it his original way, basically he was working in Belgium. He made some other film His early films are brilliant, by the way. He basically got sick of the Baldrum art critic circle being up their own asses. So he wanted to make a film that was to basically say, fuck you. So uh, a kind of sleazy horror film, but because he's Harry Kummel, he can't actually do that because he's a genius. So if he'd had his way, he would have had all the sadism and the women and everything, but he couldn't afford it. And so that one scene gives you all of that without actually showing it. It's just genius when you think about it
0: it's so good and it also adds like another kind of cool like i i love the dynamic relationship actually between stefan and the countess which uh obviously i mean the stefan is not our main goal <laughs> but but they clearly it's almost sort of like how like animals can sniff another out and be like "Ooh, you're you're like me there's like there's this this innate kind of understanding and even like towards the uh, not to jump way ahead, but one thing I thought was sort of bizarrely sweet is when Stefan's dead and they've got the body wrapped up and they're about to dispose of it. She actually bends down and gives him a kiss, which I don't know, maybe it's says something me where I'm like, oh, that's so sweet.
4: <laughs> she's got that weird, medley thing. On one hand, she's like a total libertine and sadist. I can't remember who it is, but I quoted them in my book, uh, one of the scholars, and I'm apologies, I can't remember who it was who talks about Bathory as being one of these libertine dandies. So you get the setting of the hotel in Europe and this idea that someone's kind of travelling around Europe, going to these hotels and stuff. She's got that aspect to her, which makes her very male because that's like, you know, Lord Byron. She's like a Byronic character. But then, on the other hand, she's got this weird maternal side to her which makes her even more dangerous, I think. You know, the little hug and the way she touches, comforts Valerie and the little touches on the hands and, you know, I think it's another great touch because it makes her all the more deadly because she is nurturing on one hand, but then she's very... I think she wants them to love her, but in a very selfish, narcissistic way because when they try to go against her, like a loner, you just... Even though she doesn't say it, you know that Alona's never going to be allowed to leave. Yeah, it makes it even more deadlier than someone like, say, even Christopher Lee's Dracula. She can manipulate.
1: I like that Alona is jealous almost right off the bat, and she knows once Valerie's in the picture that she's going to be replaced.
4: Andrea Rowe's great in that. She doesn't get talked about enough, I don't think. She doesn't get enough credit for that role. Well, it's hard when you're with Dalphine. Everyone else gets upstage, but Alona is... All of the characters are brilliant, and they're all really fleshed out. But Alona, especially, is a very complicated character. She's got, like, jealousy and fear, and she's sort of fed up with trailing around after Bathory as well. And, you know, there's so much going on with Alona, but she barely speaks. You just kind of see it in a little pouts and the way she looks and you
1: know, she kind of reminds me of like a familiar or like um, I kept re- remembering let the right one in and the old man character who's like been with the vampire for so long. Yeah. And I just picture her, you know, wondering when she came to Bathory and you know, what her fate would have been had they not run across uh, Stefan and, and Valerie. One other thing real quick, talking about the hotel again the use of the balcony and the whole idea of voyeurism and just how many times people are being watched through their hotel windows is pretty great. And it kind of goes along with what you're talking about with the uh, compact mirror and just how many mirrors there are in this place is kind of unbelievable.
4: The mirrors caused a uh, huge – because that mirrored – bath. Well, it's not a mirrored bathroom, but the bathroom, the black bathroom where the, there's reflections in the tiles – Cumberland wanted that room because obviously it just looks amazing. But the cameramen had to actually black themselves out and it was boiling in there apparently. They'd boarded all the windows up so they had no daylight. It was actually shot in summer, in a very hot summer. So the stuff you see, the little winter bits, they were actually taken much earlier on in the production. The main bulk of it was shot in the middle of summer and they're sweltering and they're kind of covered in black, head to toe black blankets and stuff. So they won't register on these tiles. Yeah. I and mean, that was the level of detail that went into how this was made. Every single detail, every mirror, every wind, like literally everything come all obsessed over every single aspect. And these things are not there by accident, like the flowers. He told me it's to do with like chrysanthemums, have a connotation to homosexuality. You know, there's sort of a motif. And then the Valerie has a flower motif, which is to kind of do with virginity. And yeah, all these little things that he kind of thought about beforehand. And so you see them pop up and the more you see, it's one of those films, the more you see it, and God knows how many times I watched it to write a, the book alone, <laughs> I couldn't tell you. But every single time you're like, spot another little thing, another little reference, and you think, oh, why did they make that gesture? Or what does that mean? Or what's that flower there? Or why those mirrors?
0: Or, you know, it's, it's one of those films by the way, anybody listening, like when, when Kat's book comes out, buy it. Because we got a sneak peek and it is brilliant. <laughs> if it ever comes out. <laughs> it will. It will. It's, you, know, you and I have bonded over having books that, have, <laughs> that are taking forever to come out. No, so. yeah, I'm
4: told it should be soon. Because I just can't wait for people to, to read it. And then hopefully, I'm glad you read it, Mike, and then went back. And it changed your perception of the film. That was why I wrote it really, because I think, you know, it's one of those films you really have to take time to soak it in and look at what's being done and what tradition it belongs to and where this comes from and what that means to really truly appreciate what a unique masterpiece it is. And because it's quite a slow burner, I think people do tend to get turned off by it because they just think, oh, you know, nothing's happening so that was like my main motivation really for that particular film is so I just thought there's so much to talk about here like after studying it over and over again for years because I'm slightly obsessed with it I already knew there was a lot to talk about and then even more came out of the writing process I started to notice all these other things which was great I don't think it it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever worked on
1: I want to talk real quick, too, about the idea of Stefan and Bathory. We talked about the kind of kinship that they have, and I think that's even there in the costuming, because we see the Countess in her full-length red dress, and then we've got Stefan in that shorty little red
0: <laughs> yeah. nightgown that he's
1: wearing at one point.
0: It's a bathrobe. Yes. A bathrobe, yeah. <laughs> <And> the bathrobe. <laughs> <laughs> In the- I just picture John Carlin, it's all right. He's so in, cute in, like in that
4: bathrobe, though, even though he turns into a bit of a maniac in that, in the rest of that scene. They do, like, the costuming, the way it's mirrored. Another one of the quotes I used for the book was somebody, another scholar pointed out that there's this aristocracy angle in there. Like, if you look into the whole heritage of Bathory, the person, a lot of the myth is exaggerated, And the numbers and everything, you know, has been distorted over the years. So she's become more of a folklore figure than the person she really was, who was, you know, a countess who was in charge of a huge estate after her husband died in a time when women were not allowed to own anything. And so she desperately tried to keep hold of it. The mindset then for the aristocrats is they, serfs were not humans. They felt they had a right to treat these people with cruelty if they weren't working hard enough or, you know, they were less than human. Bathory's husband was equally cruel. That's where she learned it from, you know, of a surf is not behaving you punish them because they're not the same and the great thing about the Bathory character in Daughters of Darkness is she has that this kind of disdain for the little people and you see the way she talks to the cop and the way that she talks to the concierge she's got this kind of you know don't bother me with this minion you know she's got this kind of very strong sense of snobbery and these people are you know, an important to her. And it's something really rare to see in especially the female vampire characters, this sort of class dominance. And Stefan has it as well, and that's why those two work really to- well together, because they kind of recognise that. They kind of think they're better than everybody else. The reverse of that, you have Valerie and Ilona, who are kind of like the minions. They're very submissive. And they play off that dynamic because Alona and Valerie are just kind of bossed around by everyone. <laughs> just kind of go with the flow, whereas you have Bathory and Stefan sort of lording it up.
1: Yeah, it's like Bathory became the yeah, the, the the idea of uh, Vlad the Impaler and all of the stories that came up around him, and how much of that was you know PR or you know the the locals making up stories versus how much of Bathory's world was real and i appreciate it in your book that you try to figure out like the historical realness of her character and what she might have really been up to but with the what was being reported in hungary and the lapse of time and all that it's relatively impossible
4: there's two books basically kimberly craft and tony thorne have written the the best books on Bathory. And both of them went to Hungary and found official papers and court reports and witness statements. And, you know, admittedly, they can't get the whole truth because a lot of witness statements would have been taken under torture, for example. But the conclusion of both of those books is the crimes of Countess Bathory, who's in the Guinness Book of Records for being like the most prolific female serial killer, have been grossly exaggerated. She never bathed in blood. That's never spoken about in one single testimony. You know, there are certain consistencies crop up. She did do some of the crimes she was accused of. And Tony Thorne takes the angle that a lot of it was political to remove a powerful woman from a Because she had more money and more property than the king at the time. Who owed money to her? So after her husband's death, she was a powerful figure in a culture where women weren't supposed to have power. So there was a political angle, but there's a, there's a lot of bullshit that surrounds the Bathory myth, and she's become like a fairy tale figure because of that. What's interesting, I pointed this out, is there are so few films about Countess Bathory. When you compare them to Drac, well, there's more male vampires than females anyway. There's much more Draculas than there are Carmelas. But then, if you look at the female vampires, they're all mainly Lafanu's Carmida. They're based on that. There are very few filmic adaptations of Bathory, and I think it's because, you know, she's a female serial killer, and that's one of the most, the still now the biggest taboos that we'll see on screen. Because people don't want to believe that a woman can be just cruel and want to kill people. We can believe it of men, but we don't want to believe it of women. There always has to, with the Carmina ones, it's always like it's a curse or they're kind of forced into doing it or they're, you know, whereas Kummel's Bathory is just completely unrepentant. She's a libertine. She does what she does because she enjoys it. And I think that's the first one, the first film that really does that. And then you see it later on in John Rowland's Fascination from 79, but it's a very, very rare approach to take.
0: When you think of female vampires pre-Daughters of Darkness, I mean, like Dracula's daughter, you know, she clearly doesn't want that life. Like, she's just, there's just a lot of angst, a lot of sadness. And, you yeah, typically when people think of female vampires, I think, yeah, unfortunately, they just think of the victim's. So, you know, they don't often think of the actual, like, female ones, except for, you know, the rare the rare cases, as far as, like, the mainstream goes.
4: I mean, you had Countess Dracula from the same year Hammers one with Ingrid Pitt. With her, it's, it's put down to, like, you know, you've got a supernatural angle and she wants to be young, and it's put down to the, I don't know, the whimsy of an aging, jealous old woman who's lost her mind. You know, so she does this thing because she's just jealous and she wants a young boyfriend, and it's all a bit he, not to slag in with Pid off because I love her, but that's the approach. And the only other one that really comes close is checks and Moral Tales. But even that isn't seen, you know, you don't get the c- cruelty that you see in Daughters of Darkness from the Bathory there. You get a bit of it. You have that aristocracy line in that one as well, where the girls are selected from the village and you know, which goes with the historical context. But you really don't see a lot of it in horror film because I think it's the one thing that people find really uncomfortable. They want it explained when it's a woman. It's fine for a guy to be a complete psycho killer and none of it be explained. It's like, oh, it's just a psycho. But if you do it with a woman, it's so transgressive, it's less accepted.
1: What's weird too that it gets set up as vanity. She murdered all of these women and had their blood to bathe in because she wanted to stay young. And then you also couple that with the lesbianism. And here she is a threat to the patriarchy as far as being a lesbian, which, you know, you're talking about how she had as much money as the king. I mean, what's a better way to take away all of her money than to frame her and say, oh, she's a murderess. We need to take away everything from her.
4: Definitely, and that is the line that Tony Thorne takes in his text. I mean, some people have accused him of being revisionist, and, you know, he does kind of, he is kind of, but Kimberly Craft is slightly less, she's more in the middle, she tries to be more balanced. But there was a definite, you know, Countess Baffery owns so much land, so much power, you know, as soon as her protection's gone... She's basically left out in the wilds and you suddenly get these men who want to put a claim on that. Because, of course, they can take all her property away, just wall her up somewhere. It's great. Perfect excuse. Uh, Men at that time did far worse things, especially in battle. Stories of people being beheaded and their heads being kicked around like footballs and cannibalism and God knows what else. You know, it was a difficult time. It wasn't like our time. Sounds really shocking to us now, but, you know, this was like 16th century or 15th century Hungary, where they were constantly at war. So people just don't want to see it, though. Um, and even the, the later Bathory adaptation, the Anna Friel one, it's beautiful. It's done more like a drama. It has that angle that Bathory is a woman who's losing control of her estate. But they put in these weird things, like she has a romance with Cravagio, the painter, and it's like she didn't even know him. Like, why is this in the film? It kind, of, It's beautiful, and it's really kind of decadent and everything. It starts off, you know, to seem to be historically correct until these like, weird, like, romance. So even that can't really do it in a truthful way, and kind of weird flashbacks. And it's a beautiful film, but again just takes so you know it is almost too scared to present the actual reality of it
0: cause it's, i guess it's quite grim you know it's sort of like whenever people sort of naively say oh the world would be a less violent place if it was run by women because there's always this blanket assumption that just being a female like biologically means you're automatically a nurturer like and it's almost like there's sort of this unwillingness to kind of look at the fact that like if you're a human being you're going to have darkness and light, and and just automatically being a bio female doesn't mean you're going to be a great mother. I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of people from dysfunctional families can attest to.
4: I think that's why it's so uncomfortable. People don't want to see it. Women can be just as cruel, even more manipulative than men. You put them in positions of power, they can be just as abusive. We get a lot of abuse from men because they happen to have more power, but people generally. Just humanity in general, you know, power corrupts and, you know, people can do cruel things, whether they're male or female. And I think the thing that Kumul does so brilliantly is links Bathory in with this whole aristocracy tradition where sadism, you know, it's it's like the Desard thing. It's the libertines from Desard, They feel like they have a natural right to act like that. Is part of their world, and it's played wonderfully by Dalphine because it's never overstated, but when you look at what she does and the things she says, you can see she's very much from this libertine world. Apart from fascination, I can't think of many other films that, no, well, apart from fascination, where you have a group of women who may or may not be vampires, and this is not a spoiler, who basically just have this weird cult. You know, that's got a similar thing. It's linked to social class. It's linked to being very powerful. I think people and men, sorry, Mike, but men in particular are very uncomfortable. They want the lesbian vampires, but they want to be kind of submissive or easy to manipulate. They don't want someone like Delphine Sarig who would just tear their fucking head off if they look the wrong way. She doesn't, uh, Bonnie Zimmerman wrote an amazing feminist analysis of the film back in the 80s, saying, you know, because she's an older woman, she's neither the crone or the young maiden. She's something else. She's she's sexual and she's powerful, but it's never played for titillation. You know, she doesn't do all the usual thing. Even the seduction of Valerie is approached in a very different way. And this is all down to Dalphine and her performance. There's, there's none of that usual sensationalism. And so her character stays very powerful and therefore represents a threat to guys who are slightly insecure, I guess.
0: <laughs> the men aren't needed. And that's that seems to be kind of a thing is like when lesbians, at least with a lot of lesbian vampires I've seen, is that there's always because like like Razorblade Smile for example which is a film I really actually really love but and that one has you know lesbian vampires but ultimately the characters in love with the guy and it's like there's always like it's always like, always like this sort of like thing of like oh don't worry dudes like they'll go back to the dick. No, you're right because Bread and Roses does it.
4: I mean, that's really you know starts off a bit transgressive, and you know, kudos to that film. It was the first one that had the lesbian kiss and it broke a lot of boundaries. But at the end of the day, it comes down to a heteronormative love affair and typical things like female jealousy and. Something like Daughters of Darkness is just so transgressive, by the way. You know, you have these two women, Alona and Bathory, kind of swanning around the European coast who don't need men, have got no time for them. You know, Bathory's obviously loaded. And it just totally goes against the grain for anything else.
0: Well, and especially because even right down to like their choice of victims, like with the girls that are murdered in Bruges, they're all young, beautiful women. I mean, they, I mean, they can feed from men. Like this is just bloodletting, but and they do feed from like Stefan later on when he uh, when he gets killed. But um, but their choice, I just even love that. Even even like with their choice of victims, it's like eh, you know, like it's almost like guys are kind of like Taco Bell. They're like, dudes are fast food that like, okay, if you're in a pinch, it'll do whatever. But, you know, that's, it's never like the main course. It's never the main choice.
1: The women in this film are more like a sumptuous meal that you want to sit down and do the whole, you know, the white kerchief around the neck, the napkin and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, no, I I totally get you. And really, it's, it's kind of strange that Bathory is Valerie's protector. I mean, she is the hero at the end when she manages to murder Stefan because Stefan, not only did we see him uh, hitting her with the belt earlier, but then it's this whole moment of him slapping her around again and, I was so glad when Bathory's like, nope, not going to stand for this.
4: It's such a great line, and it's done in uh, Blood-Spattered Bride does a similar thing. You know, marriage is seen as is totally negative, and to have this older woman figure come along, this independent, powerful older woman figure come along and be the saviour from that. I talked in the book about the bluebeard angle. You see it in so much gothic film, the 40s melodramas, you know, like Rebecca. There's always the young, innocent woman comes into the marriage and there's a, a male predator or, you know, manipulator. Um, and as the girl finds out the mystery, she puts herself in danger. It comes up so much in gothic film in general, not just in horror film. And in the fairy tale, Bluebeard, you have this young woman. She, most people know this, but she marries this guy called Bluebeard. He says, I'll give you all the keys to all the rooms, but never go in this room. Because if you go in this room, you know, it's, you know, that's it. I forbid you. And of course, he leaves the, he leaves the castle and she goes in that one room, finds all his dead wives in there. And she's like, Oh, and he comes back and he says, That's it. You're going to have to die now. And she's saved by, you know, a male relative. And in 1979, which is way after Daughters of Darkness, Angela Carter rewrote Bluebeard as part of the Bloody Chamber to have the wife rescued by a maternal figure rather than a man. And so Daughters of Darkness is an interesting forerunner to the work that Angela... And I, I don't know if Angela Carter ever saw it, she was massively into European films, and she absolutely loved, especially Czech films, like uh, The Company of Wolves, is largely influenced by Valerie in A Week of Wonders. So I wouldn't be surprised, but it's it's like, considering it's eight years before that, it's kind of rewriting the myth. Stefan is Bluebeard, and Valerie is the wife, and I just think it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, I am... Pretty much unfamiliar with the Bluebeard story, but just what you're describing, I mean, it seems so Pandora esque.
4: Yeah, it's kind of like, don't go in here, don't go in here. She goes around the castle, goes into this. I mean, it's so gore. People think of fairy tales now like Disney, and the original fairy tales are just so not like Disney. You know, you have things like, I don't know, a Little Red Riding Hood had aspects of cannibalism, and some of them are really gory and really nasty. And Bluebeard is basically a serial killer. And this is a fairy, a t- traditional fairy tale that little girls would be told.
0: <laughs> Pandora, yeah. And to mention sort of the uh, Garden of Eden, where it's just, you know, ladies don't don't be
4: curious. It'll be your downfall. Yeah, don't fault. be curious. Or, and it's used so well in gothic melodrama because you find a lot of the 40s gothic melodrama and gothic romance, you know, like the Anne Radcliffe. It's always some young, naive girl who kind of comes into a scenario and she's told to sort of keep her nose out, but she's too inquisitive and she starts to explore and then the shit hits the fan and there 's always some i won 't name any films because i don 't want to give any spoilers, but some very high profile films of the forties period you know there 's always some dashing young hero to burst in at the end uh there 's a one I have in mind that i 'm not going to say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because this girl gets too curious and she starts to, you know it 's that thing, and it comes up in so much gothic. You see it in horror as well. And I love that kumo has Valerie as the the Bluebeard's wife. She's that total typical Gothic maiden type. Very naive, very inquisitive, keeps pressing him all the time, ta- all the questions. You can see he's getting more and more annoyed because she's like, when are we going to see him? When are you going to make that? For-? You know, she's on and on at him. and And it's great the way that he uses that.
1: Is there a historical significance to the name Valerie? I mean, I don't know what the etymology of that word is because, I mean, you talked about Valerie in her Week of Wonders. We've got Danielle also being Valerie in 1969, her first film role, and then she is Valerie again here in this movie. It's just like, it seems like I kind don't of a know. interesting. It,
4: yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that was more kind of. You know because she'd been in another film called Valerie and it could have been that they were trying to cash in on the name I don't know actually I really don't know because it's not really a massively common name either is it
1: I just think of the monkey song because the Countess Elizabeth Vittori believed human blood,
2: blood to be the elixir of youth. Because she murdered 300 young girls to obtain it. Because she created a band of disciples to follow in her footsteps. She was condemned to be walled up in her room. The workmen did a thorough job. job. All that escaped was a bat. Daughters of Darkness from Gemini Marin Farrell. Rated R under 17. Not admitted without a
1: parent. Have you guys ever seen any films by, uh, Fonz Rademacher's? I collected a few a few years ago, but I never watched them. He did one called Because of the Cats and another one called Max Havilar. And he's one of these guys who obviously he shows up as a mom or mother in this movie, but he would switch from acting to directing a lot and he's got a very fascinating biography like he worked with uh one italian director and one french director and he was their assistants and stuff oh it was De Sica and renoir and it's just like wow and then he's got such a great face when he shows up as mother it's just like oh wow this guy looks really interesting i kind of wish that there'd been more yeah, of him. he
4: was another afterthought that whole angle with him there was actually going to be a mother And I think Kamal knew it and just thought, oh, no, wouldn't it be great if Mother was actually a rich homosexual? So it's just, you know, it was one of those things that happened last minute. But it's so good because you don't see it coming. (laughs) It's just like, you know, you imagine that Lady Chilton is going to be this, like, very upper class, prim, old lady. And then you just get this very flamboyant character in his little... Conservatory with the orchids and stuff is so good, but yeah, it's a shame you don't see more of him.
1: He totally reminded me of like General Sternwood from The Big Sleep, yeah, uh, sitting in that hot house with all of his orchids. Yeah, he's around. wonderful.
4: He's like a weird little Bond villain, also. He's so sinister, but I guess if you'd seen more of him, then it would have kind of spoiled the effect because he just comes in and goes. And then you're just left with, oh, wow, what's all that about then? Because it's kind of never spoken about again, (laughs) mentioned. But then you start to think, ah, that's why Stefan's so shady and irritable.
0: Well, and it ties back to like an earlier line that Stefan just mentions to Valerie about, you know, mother says, uh, you know, us being different is a strength and not a weakness. And initially, you know, you take that at face value and you're like, oh, that's kind of like a positive message. But then later on, you're like that has so many different, I mean, cause even just overlooking the homosexuality aspect, cause I feel like, I mean, her dialogue with Stefan is so cryptic, like it's so fascinating. And then it, and there's almost like, it makes you wonder like, what else has Stefan does? Cause she clearly has an insight into his like very dark side, which of course, yeah. After the phone call, he ends up beating the crap out of Valerie with a belt and just as is pretty brutal uh, just it's like gosh what is it like did she raise him is it i think mike you're the one that said maybe like he was a kept boy i don't know there's just it leaves you wanting more but it doesn't really give you that but but you know but you kind of love it for that too
4: yeah i think if it had explained the whole dynamic with mother because there is that kind of thing that he's probably Stefan probably hasn't got many of his own and he's possibly kept Because that phone call they have is very subtext again. People are saying things, but you know they mean something else. You know, I think if they had brought mother in, it would have spoiled it, I think. Because it's better to just leave you wondering, leave you thinking, you know, what's all that about?
1: Yeah, his line of about Stefan getting married, it wasn't just foolish, it was unrealistic. And it's like, ooh, okay, so maybe he knows which way Stefan is really swinging. That's the old
4: sadism thing. And you wonder what, you know, Mother has to do with that because that's obviously something that's a big part of his personality. This whole fact that he obviously gets off on dead bodies and... (laughs) What else? Look on his face when that body comes out of the building. The way that
1: he and Bathory are kind of talking each other off when they're talking about the torture. We we mentioned that before, but just that level of their, um, perversity. And then we kind of have that, like, talking each other off scene again later when it's Valerie and Bathory in, um, Bathory's car. And the way that, uh, I love that the way that she is framed behind Valerie and the way that they're just talking, uh, and getting each other super hot while they're driving and driving faster and faster. There's
4: so much chemistry between each of the, like, each of the main characters. Because each relationship has its own energy. And not one single one is... Igno- I know Valerie and Bathory is supposed to be the main focus. But then you've got Bathory and Stefan. Stefan and Alona. Alona and Valerie have sort of got this weird jealousy in this kind of, you know, everyone's got their own dynamic where they're just sort of vibing off one another or rubbing up against one another. And Stefan and Bathory are kind of the two really dominant characters you go head to head in these talks that they have and it's kind of like you know yeah i'm at your level i can compete with you of course stefan can't because he's just a weakling man but you know he tries
0: go into the gothic tradition too like i love that she's always clad in white because when i think of um like especially particularly like gothic fiction there's always that sort of sort of tropey image of the you know of the woman in a white nightgown Holding like a candlestick or a lantern, uh, seeking, you know, sneaking around trying to find the secrets of the, you know, the house or the castle. And, um, the fact that she's always clad in white, just, she always looks like this angel with the blonde hair. And just, you know, Danielle's obviously like a beautiful, she has that sort of beautiful kind of, you know, sort of innocence about her features too, which, which plays perfectly with her character.
4: She's perfect for the role, and Kummel was very... Well, I know Mike's got an interview with Danielle, we may. So, and I know, because I interviewed her for the book, the sort of things that she's probably said in that interview. But she was very naive and very young when she came to the production, and Kumal didn't really have a lot of patience with her. But I think if you looked at it more, you know, if you'd taken a step back, I mean, it was a massively underfunded project, and they were under a lot of stress. They're locked in that hotel and the searing heat for weeks at a time, I think they only got one day off a week, you know, in a blacked up hotel because they didn't have any sunlight in there and everyone's getting on everyone else's nerves. So it was a difficult production, but I think if he'd taken a step back and not, he was very frustrated that she wanted to be directed and he's not an actor's director. He's more like someone like Barofsky, who's more about aesthetic and, you know, would, would spend more time looking at, like we said, the mirrors and the position of the mirrors and the position of the actors. What he wanted was actors to come in and basically do their own thing. You know, so there's a lot of frustration on his part that she's expecting more. But I think because she was so naive and not particularly confident, that really works with the role because she constantly has that look on her face. Like, where am I? What's going on? You know, she's come into this romance with this obviously ridiculous idea that it's happily ever after. And then the, her life just start over the space of a few days, just starts to completely disassemble all the things that she believed about Stefan, you know. Um, and I think that gives it that emotional honesty that you really feel for her, and you're kind of rooting for Bathory, even though you know, you know, Bathory is like this sadistic kind of, you know, but you want someone to get Valerie out of there. Does that make sense? I
1: have a really dumb question. At the very end, after we see Countess Bathory die in that amazing shot of her with the tree going through her chest, is that Delphine's voice that is coming out of Danielle's mouth when she is there with the couple?
4: Basically, she read, and again, it's ambiguous but basically the idea is that she has reincarnated as valerie somehow and i think that's the the most wonderful thing about it's like the punchline um that you believe that she's going to go away with this girl and she saved her but then when you think about the connotations that what you know what's just happened you think did she really want valerie because she was in love with her or did she want valerie so she could consume her she's like the ultimate consuming mother she nurtures the child but then eats the child alive and it's such a tiny little thing that's on at the end i know it can it's not a dumb question because it confuses so many people and um it relates to something else, actually, which I... Another film which has a similar ending, which I don't want to say because it will spoil that film. But, yeah, it's deliberate. But it's done so subtly that people are like, Huh? Was that, <laughs> you know, again, just so perfect.
0: I absolutely love that ending, too, because that... Especially, like, rewatching it the second time, because I think the first time I probably was more like, Oh... Yeah, it takes a few times to catch it.
4: And I don't think I've noticed it the first time. It, it It's one of those things that takes a few viewings to sink in. And then you're like, ah, but then it kind of gives it this horrible kind of subtext. <laughs> that Was she just grooming her or is that just, you know, there's always so many questions that come up over this film. And even after writing like 35,000 words on it, there's still things that I'm not, decided on you know which I love
0: same and especially because I was like that's actually especially like revisiting it's like what a cool twist is that you know it's she's you know this implication that she's possibly just like this this centuries old vampire that can just take a different host form yeah
4: which is just so great when you think about it yeah she just uses the body and I know that that kind of concept has been used you know the host body has been used in more modern horror films, which I won't name, but yeah it I think apart from the other really a film I'm thinking of, that was the first time I'd seen that, and it's such a clever little twist
0: i love it. and then and then right up right to like the almost sort of like crane shot. At the end, like, it's just kind of leaving you with this sense of like, there's no, because my favorite horror films typically have endings where it's like, there's not really a traditional happy ending. It's just kind of ones that just sort of leave you with that feeling of like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, like, there's no like, real relief. There's no classic good guys winning. I mean, we don't even have that real dynamic in the film. Because like, Mike, what you said, I mean, in a lot of ways, the Countess is our heroine. You know, and uh, which is also brilliant. I kind of love the fact that, like, the there's so much gray area in this film.
4: I love that nothing in life is ever serious. And then you see Valerie at the end and she's kind of talking to that couple and she's on some, like, holiday location. It's just kind of like, here it goes again. And it's got that whole libertine vibe to it, that whole decadent vibe to it. So transgressive and powerful,
1: yeah, wearing the Countess's incredible black cape.
4: Oh, that cape. <laughs> that cape is just so... That scene when they're on the mount. Oh, yeah. Is it after Ilona's burial? Yes. There, and she brings the
0: cape up. And, oh, my God. <laughs> it's just so good. I'm glad you guys brought that up, because tying kind of back into what you were talking uh, about, cat with the, whole, the attitude of sort of the royals, is that... You know, I'd mentioned that she – the Countess kisses Stefan's face after he's dead and they're wrapping his body up. Ilona, you would think, would get that treatment. And instead, it's just more like she just kind of kicks that body. Into- oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that's what I mean.
4: It's got that whole thing that, you know, well, that's gone now. You know? And, um, and she does have all these little touches that if you watch it, you'll see – relate specifically to a certain social class it's incredible there's so and the thing is harry cummel wrote this thing in like a few days with the producer you know at his parents table and you know it was inspired by a article he'd read about a historical article in a magazine about Bathory. so obviously it's got aspects of carmina and whatever you know but he wasn't specifically focused on that when he wrote his story And he said they were basically trying to get as much TNA into it and shocking things and whatever, because he's out to, you know, basically piss off the Belgian film critics, but then unintentionally makes the most art house vampire film (laughs) ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, but he's an incredible, like if you speak to him, he's an incredibly cultured man. And so I think a lot of it would have been instinctive to him. He instinctively understood the bourgeois, which he was kind of rallying against that in a way, this sort of bourgeois art critic circle. But according to him, none of it was conscious. It wasn't something he consciously had in his mind, I'm going to set out and do this. It it just kind of flowed, I guess. And um when you break it down, though, you just think that is some damn fine writing.
1: All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Valerie herself, Miss Danielle may, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages.
5: Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire, just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out AdamandEve.com today, select one item, and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at AdamandEve.com.
1: I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at SuperTrueStories.com. From page to screen, page
5: to screen.
1: So they have, nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened, or just throw it in the garbage can.
5: Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look. But sometimes it works out and turns out even better.
1: Gregor Fisher, his Bacon number is two, because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually, and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X-Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas now,
4: that just makes me (laughs) want to rush out. It's about the act and about the writing, that's really what theater is for me.
1: Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind, there's a joke for the oldies. Um, <laughs> like, Who's
5: Prince? Who's I'm he?
0: Like.
1: I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys going, right, okay, so you're a psycho, right, can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker and Stitcher and put in the search box from page to screen.
2: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resent at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun.
1: I did want to talk to you about Valerie and how you managed to, to wind up in that film. How did you decide, like, this is what I want to do?
3: I started in show business, I was 16 actually, I was um, going to be a dress designer, uh, I had all my diplomas and everything and one day I was asked to go on a TV show and uh, coming into the studio, uh, there was no one there, There was. it was a rest uh, period. And suddenly I decided, oh excuse me, that's what exactly what I want to do. <laughs> and I and I I turned around and I you know at sixteen if if you never did any uh, TV shows or whatever you wonder what to do how to how to get into the business so. They told me that the only way that I could uh, learn the business was to be a, a hostess on, on on a TV show, and at that time there was a lot of of uh, shows with hostesses. I decided to go into a, a modeling uh, agency, and um, I took the course and I uh, I've auditioned and I've uh, I was very uh, easily. Picked up to become a hostess, and um, from there, from there, I also uh, was representing the agency. And uh, she asked me to uh, go to some um, different uh, pageant, and uh, I won the Miss Miss uh, Province of Quebec pageant in '66 for '67, and um, uh, in. Into the uh, uh, into the process, the uh, I, I had a, a, um, on, a contract to work on on the radio in a radio station. There I met. It, it all it's it's all trumbling down, but it's going you, you're gonna see the uh, <laughs> where it's going. From there, I met a guy that came from France, um, and he was a singer. He asked me to to do a record. So I did a record, and I had to go for promotion on TV. So uh, here I am singing one day uh, as a promotion um, work. Denis Roo was there, and he was looking at me. There was a, a big storm that day, and the show was uh, uh, under uh, a tent, and uh, the wind was uh, was <laughs> was pouring in with the with the with the water, and 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 it, and it was fun for me. So I had fun. And Denis, who looked at that, and he says, "My God, she knows how to uh, to react in front of the camera." So let's uh, let's uh, try to uh, uh, see what she's be- she would if she would be able to do a film. And uh, I may- I pass an audition for that, and it's all it all started like that. I did Valerie had no intention of becoming an actress, but um Denis saw that I was maybe able anyway. I started there, and there 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 it was uh, it went crumbling down after because i I did immediately after I did the initiation, which is the second film done also by Denis but Valerie did a million dollar in six months at one dollar seventy five the entrance for the yeah so it was very 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 uh, it, was, it became very very big at that time but there was nudity of course it was a soft nudity but it was there was nudity so that's why it it all started big because uh, the church was 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 ruling everything in in Quebec at that time i became someone very famous for uh, for uh, going against the 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 the, uh, the, the church rules <laughs> and and the religion rules and um, it it went on like that for uh, for many films and then of course it it became so popular. Valerie was bought by forty uh, uh, countries uh, in the world. And initiation also was very very popular right after. Uh, the Valerie was done in black and white at with sixty thousand dollars only. But Valerie became very, very big. It was done in color. Oh my God, it was something. <laughs> so, and uh, and it made me go to Cannes, the Cannes Festival, and over there, uh, that's where I met. It took uh, ten minutes. It was very funny. Uh, I met uh, Henri Lange, that was the producer of Dar- da- Daughters of Darkness and uh, he met me at uh, at the bar of a hotel of an hotel and he said are you uh, are you, uh, sitting down he said are you free in, in september i said yes this is okay you have the role <laughs> so, so that was it that was it that was it in in 15 minutes i had the role i i, I said okay i'm coming back i'm it was in May, but in Sept- I think it was September. I went back to uh, or July. No, no, July, July. It was in, the, the film festival was in May, but I came back in July in Belgium and I did uh, Le Rouge aux Lèvres. That's the that's the main, you know, because I I was a singer. Also, I did shows. I did TV shows. Uh, uh, I did, we do we do everything here. We're not mostly or mainly uh, actresses when we uh, we go into show business.
1: Did. The idea of doing Nudity and Valerie and the Initiation, did that give you pause at all?
3: Oh, well, of course it was scary. But uh, at that time, um, for Valerie, it was very funny because when I read the script, I, I had an audition. When I read the script, the script was uh, parted in two. There was the audio and the video part, okay? And I... I kept uh, uh, reading the audio part because it was the, mostly what I had to say, uh, wh- which was explaining much more than the, the, the video part, uh, what I had to do. But in the video part, suddenly there's a part where I uh, it was written uh, and she tries on a dress she buys and she tries on a dress and she gets nude and she buys and I didn't see it. So... When it came the time to do the scene, <laughs> I knew that I had love scenes to do, but I thought to myself, you know, it won't be, uh, it will be under the, under the sheets, and I, I'm not afraid of that. But uh, when it came time for me, uh, the day came that I had to uh, un- un- undress and and uh, try the the, the the new dress I was supposed to buy in the film. Denise said, "I'm I'm having all the uh, the people on the set go away, and uh, you you won't feel bad, and uh, it's the first day, and uh, we'll make you that as comfortable as we can." I said, "What? What's happening?" He says, "Well, you have to you have to undress." I said, "Are you crazy?" He says, "Yes, you have to undress." And I, 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 I looked suddenly at the script and I saw that it was written down and I said, my God, I accepted this thing. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, he says, well, Danielle, and of course I, uh, I said, well, can we do something else? <laughs> of course I tried to get off of that, uh, and he, um, he looked at me and he says, Danielle, very kindly though. He says, "Well, if you don't want to do it, tell me right now because we might have to change you." But he he was not rough telling me that, you know. He was uh, he was hey that it was written down. He said yes, and so I sat down. I sat down for five minutes and I said, let me let me alone for for, for a few minutes. And uh, from there, I decided of the rest of my life. In five minutes, I decided that yes, I would do it and. Um, Whatever were the consequences, I, uh, I had to uh, to face them. So I decided, uh, you know, I was um, I was twenty one at the time, and uh, that's it. I, I did it, and and it was fun to tell you the truth. It, of course, the first time it's very uh, scary. You don't feel comfortable, but um, I had to uh, deal with the, the cameraman. Uh, mostly, and and the and and everyone was out of the of the stage every time. So uh, when do you, you know when you've done it once, the second or third or the fourth time, it's, it's still the same. <laughs> they know you perfectly well after that, so it doesn't mean a thing. And when I really felt uncomfortable, there was the, uh, the there was the cameraman that that I was very close to because. He could see in the lens that I was not feeling well, so he was saying to the Nino, you know, "I think we should change the, the 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 pacing, or we should change the role, or we should change the 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 the, the, the way that you want to have her do this this scene." And uh, he was mostly the one that that supported me in in different occasions where I didn't feel comfortable. It was not very, very easy, but you know, when you face, you have to face it. You, if you say, yes, I'm doing it, well, do it. Uh, I've always been like that. I do, I'm not the kind of girl that would say, well, you know, I did it, but it was, I was young and I was inexperienced uh, and uh, that's nothing. That's uh, I have a lot of uh, comedians that said that after doing films uh, where there was some nudity and I... I feel they're crazy. I feel they're not. You know, they're not strong enough to do this. This, if you haven't played the game, if you don't. And after that, of course, I had to um, to decide if I was going to continue in that way or not. And of course, I'm young. Okay, it's okay, but uh, getting uh, 27, 28, that's enough. <laughs> That's enough. I stopped, and, and, and I never... Uh, I, I became, after that, someone who's, who did a lot of, of um, comedy films. <laughs> Completely the opposite. I did comedy films after. So it was fun.
1: You talked about that 15 minutes of meeting with the producers of Daughters of Darkness, and mm-hmm. within 15 minutes you had the gig. Did he describe what the movie was going to be like for you?
3: Yes, of course. I had the script before I had the script. I read the script.
1: Going to Cannes, was that your first time going to France?
3: No, no. I know. uh, To tell you the truth, I had a baby (laughs) at 19, and he was born in in Strasbourg. So I was in France very uh, often before. And uh, no, no, no. Well, to work, yes, it was. But it's not in France. Belgium is not France. It's... uh, uh cannes is in france but belgium is uh, in europe let's put it this way uh, i i was never in, in in belgium before though
1: when did you end up meeting uh all of your co-workers co-stars was that uh,
3: arriving at the at the set uh we uh, we arrived in brussels i had a very funny producer a uh, uh, the director there Uh think was quite uh, quite something <laughs> he was really something Mostly, and I have to tell you that the the film, uh, of course, had, like every film, had problems with with getting some money to uh, to be done. So uh, what they did, which is quite uh, what we're doing right now uh, with um, almost every film, except if you're a big corporation, um, they were they were picking up money from different countries where they would distribute the film after. So that's how they got Andrea Rao from Germany. They got uh, Delphine Serig from France. They got uh, 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 John Carlin from the U- United States and me from Canada. So we were all, they were all having money from them to do the film and we, they could impose then their actress and actresses because of course, in Canada, I, the distribution would would be on my on my shoulder, uh, you know, the name of, of my name, because I was I was popular then. The same in, like in France and in in the United States and in Germany, I guess. Uh, uh, so we were in pause to uh, Harry Kummel in a way, except that probably he was very happy to work with Delphine Serig, who was the one who was the big the biggest star on the set because she had a a, a big career before us, you know, I met them uh, uh, the day I arrived over there. And it's funny because the film was supposed to be done in, in French, but then uh, John Carlin and Andrea Rao had uh, a lot of problems uh, talking in, in French. Uh, They couldn't, uh, they had problems anyway. So, we all switched to English because Delphine uh, also was talking for uh, 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 talking English. So we all switched to English, and we had to wait for the text to be uh, translated to do the film in English.
1: Obviously, you're bilingual, but had you acted in English before?
3: No, no, never.
1: Was that a challenge for you, or was it just natural? No,
3: no, no. It was natural because I, I've been uh, talking English since I was. A little kid, but but here in, in Quebec we mostly speak French. But uh, when I have a, let's let's put it this way: if I would talk to you for three days in English, I would be fluent, much more fluent. But now it's a, it's a problem because I don't speak uh, very often uh i don't speak very often english but uh, but but no it was not a problem because i could understand and i wasn't understanding uh, uh, john carlin much more than all the others because of course he was speaking english all the time i was closer to him
1: this might be an unfair question because this was so long ago but did you have a lot of rehearsals
3: Nope. Uh, no, no, I have a very, very, very good memory. I'm telling you. There's no problem. It's like I can explain everything from day one over there. Uh, no, no, uh, no, I had, uh, we had, uh, no rehearsal. We had, um, the only thing he he he, he 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 did put us through is to sit down and read the script. But the th- the way he did it, he said, "I want no emotion on the lines. I just want you to read the script." So we sat down and we read the script, but we had to put no emotion on the words. And that's the only thing that he asked of for. But but it's it's crazy because we read the script before and uh, we accepted every part and uh, uh, without any intona- this intonation, disintonation. We say in French. I don't know how you say that. And you know it's uh, it's uh, modulation with no modulation in in in, in, the, in, in the delivery. He d- he didn't want us to have any modulation in the delivery. Just recto tono, uh, straight. And, uh, I don't know why you did it, but that, that's the only thing you ask, uh, as a rehearsal. And every day we were arriving with, uh, the part we had to do for the next day. We were giving up, giving, look, uh, well, you probably know that you have numbers, uh, this scene is on number six, seven, or eight. And then, uh, at night we were, uh, told that, uh, the, the next morning we would have to, to uh, deal with, uh, six or seven or eight. And we knew uh, that we had to uh, study the part for the next day. That's all.
1: So what was your experience on the film? How was it for you?
3: It was very painful. (laughs) But very, very, very... I I loved it. I I loved every second of it. And and very painful. For some reason uh, that I've never really... um, I didn't do a, a search on what was the reason where, why he did it but the the, the director uh, Ari Kumel uh probably because I had less experience than all the others and he had little he had to take care of me a little longer uh, or he felt insecure towards me uh, he was picking on me all the time. He was uh, he was he was really rude. Sometimes he was uh, when I was there on time. He was saying, "No, don't you see uh, that uh, we're not ready?" And when I was there uh, too late, uh, don't you see that you put everyone in a bad situation because you're not on the set and things like that. And 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 I I was not prepared for that. I ha- always had a very pleasant way of working with everyone, and I was not prepared for that. And I kept saying to myself well, well then, yeah, come on you're 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 in france it's the first international film you're doing maybe the people are are uh, you know they, they they're more demanding uh try to learn uh, stay 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 well uh, don't don't get excited and things like that but then i had a friend uh that came to see me from uh, quebec and he was a producer and I said, you know, it's very rough for me because we were we were um, we were filming at n- well when it was the daytime. They had since it's a, a, a horror movie, we had to uh, put some um, black uh, papers in front of of the window, so we were always like, like at night. Always, even in the daytime, it was like at night, and at night it was at night. So we never saw the sun for about a month, uh, more than a month th- uh, over there. So uh, it was very depressing in, in in a sort of way. And um, the, this this guy that came to uh, to uh, from Quebec to see me, he said, Danielle, don't let them do that to you. It's uh, you're you're entitled to have a, you know to have the right direction and not to be pushed uh, pushed like that uh, for everything, so I, I said to myself, "Okay, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my uh, feet down and ask him to be uh, politely to be uh, to be uh, not to do do such a thing." And then there was a day, uh, there was a day where he was very nervous because uh, what he was filming was not uh, done the way he wanted it to be. So um I arrived on the set and again he told me that I was uh I was doing disturbance uh and uh, I went back to the to the um, um uh, makeup uh, room and uh, then I realized that the costume I I had on was um uh, torn, and uh, since he was the one who, who he, he he was funny, he went to every we say we say les essayages in French, like you 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 did you, you decide of what you're going to be wearing. So you go to a to a place where they they put you some, some costumes and uh, you you're you're trying the costumes on. So and he he, he wanted to be there to uh, to pick up everything. I was going, I had I had to. Put on for the film, but that day it was a a, um, a fur a fur uh, costume, and one of the um, of the uh, the skin was 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 ripped. So I went back to the uh, wardrobe uh, section and I, I asked them to uh, to uh, fix that. And of course I was late on the set because of that but I I I knew I had to pick uh, take off the the top so I, they would see the the ripping on the on the back so I tried to explain to uh, to Harry that uh, this was uh, I was late because of that and he became furious because I was I was I was answering him for some, for some, and I answered him very very roughly I said, hey that's enough uh, I, I'm, I'm late because of that. He came to me and he, he oh, he, he whacked me in the face. <laughs> I said, what? And me, you cannot do this to me. I became furious. I jumped in his face. And I had the, uh, um, uh, everyone was trying to calm me down. Uh, the, the makeup girl was, had a, uh, a, a, a brush, a hairbrush, and she was brushing my hair to calm me down. I took the, the brush and I, 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 Jumped on Harry, and I said, "You won't t- talk to me like this anymore." So he decided that we would go on in another room because he he, he felt very uncomfortable having this a, a discussion in front of his crew. And of course, again he said, "Hey, you're doing this in front of my crew. Are you crazy? You're doing this in front of my crew. You're gonna make me feel." Uh, uh, and he he whacked me again. Oh my. God I became so furious I jumped on him I it was it was, it was the the the, um, the furniture because there was a room where we would put the, the furniture the furniture was falling on us and everything so the crew came in and separated us and they called immediately the producer from that was in Paris and the, the guy, uh, the, the the guy Henri Lange, the one who said uh, yes, you have the role in in five in fifteen minutes, uh, said okay, I'm go- I'm co- I'm coming to uh to to uh, to see what what happened, and he asked question to everyone, and to my complete surprise, everyone everyone said that Harry was very nervous that he was not. Compatible with everyone, and that he, he was doing a a, a a bad job with some uh, some parts of the the. Um, uh, you know, he he had to be more uh, uh, plus of a director than what he was doing. He he was he he was very very anxious. He's a very anxious man. You know, he was he was asking himself, "Oh my God, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this?" So. When we arrived on the set, very often he would—he would know. He would—he would let us do the, the scene to see if it was okay, the way we were we were doing it, and then he would agree. Um, I remember a very funny thing that happened. There was a scene where the, the it's in the train. We had to uh, to uh, reenact uh, uh, an intercourse, I guess. Uh, because we were um, newly wed lovers in the train and uh, he didn't know how to uh, direct the scene so he had a book of pictures uh sexually sexually uh, uh, um, how can, can you say that
1: explicit
3: but, uh, not not explicit it was for students but uh, position <laughs> sex sex position and he would he would direct us in in showing us some pictures of what we should uh, what we should do (laughs) it it was like it was so funny instead of saying hey let's go just do what you have to do he would show us some pictures instead of saying you know uh, if it doesn't go well uh, we'll we'll take it from there and then we'll start again (laughs) no 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 he was showing some pictures in a book he had a he had a book uh, 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 from Sweden. I, I remember from Sweden. You know, <laughs> looked at, and 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 we had to do the scenes by the book. <laughs> it <laughs> Funny. but he, he he was a funny character, you know. I do understand that he was completely. Make, he's a he's a funny guy. What can I say? I remember the first time that that, that uh, you you it remind me of uh, the first uh, question you asked me, saying, uh, "Did you meet at uh, Did you meet before? Or when did you meet for the first time?" I remember that I was in the hotel and um, uh, John Carlin arrived from uh, the United States. And he said, he called me on, in my, uh, in my room and he said, uh, Danielle, John is, uh, has arrived. I would wish you to meet your uh, partner. But he says, don't take the elevator. Just go down the stairs. And go in the middle of the stairs, and and the guy was <laughs> poor. Poor John was at the end of the of the of the stairway, waiting for me. And he he staged it. He staged the way I was going to see this guy for the first time. He staged the whole way I was going to meet this guy for the first. So it was not filmed. <laughs> he, he just wanted to stage the way I was going to to to. Uh, to see uh, John for the first time, it was unbelievable. So when I, when um, when um, he, he hit me, uh, the, the, the 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 next part of it uh, is that of course I went back to the um, to the uh, hairdresser and 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 uh, makeup uh, to have everything done again because I was crying and my uh, whatever I, I was uh, like in tear. When I arrived there, John looked at me and he said, what happened?" He says, "Well, he hit me, but it's okay I, I don't don't get excited. it's enough. Well, I've explained my point, and he knows where I'm standing now He said, don don't. he says what what he hit you! And he came, he, he went running. I remember trying, me trying to get him not to go into the room where, uh, where Harry was, uh, but trying to, uh, uh, I almost tripped the, 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 the bathrobe he had on. And he arrived in the room, and he said, "Harry." Harry said, "Yes." He just punched him in the nose. He says, "You don't, you don't, you don't beat woman. Do you hear me? You don't beat woman." Ah, uh, it was terrible. It was really, really, really terrible. So, but it, I, I uh, of course, it's, it's. You, I've, you say that today. It's. It, it. You should. You. You say, "Oh my God, what a." What a, what a, what a backstage, uh, fight that was. But in, in a way, I do understand this guy that was, uh, uh, maybe it was a big film for him. Maybe it was too big for him. And he was completely overcast by the, the fact that, the, everyone could, uh, could, uh, see that he was not prepared for it. You know, I don't know. I, I, I have, uh, Now that I've worked a lot in films, I can see that he was not prepared for something so big. Although he's a very good director, but he he has a lack of a confidence in him, uh, not to, and he doesn't know how to pick what scene he has to pick and how he he has to do it to make it. Uh, you know, if you don't have twenty twenty days to do twenty kinds of uh, of different uh, IDs, you have to pick one and and film it that day. And he he was very He was not able to do that. He had uh, two or three IDs, and he um he couldn't put them together just to to choose one and say that's the way we're gonna do it, and it. was uh, it was it uh, was it was getting on his nerves all the time because he was always wondering if he could uh, if it was it, would the when you assemble the film if it would look good you know but it was good it was good what can I say well, it was good I guess that he had a, a très bon monteur good uh, editor yeah that, I guess that he had a good editor. But the film was okay. He he did a lot of uh, he had good idea, but uh, we had to uh, put a lot of of uh, our uh, strategy in to uh, make it look uh, the way uh, it should be. You know we we were a part of it.
1: You touched a little bit about John Carlin. How were your other co stars on the film?
3: Ah, that, uh, marvelous. Andrea was always uh, she um, she was quite uh, the first she was younger than I, and she was a little bit afraid because she couldn't uh, she was no one would speak uh, uh, German uh, on the set, so we couldn't talk to her very very much because she was only talking English and uh, she was not understanding quite well, so she was. Apart very uh, very often, um, uh, me and John. Well, we uh, we were together almost most of the time, uh, eating together, going out together, and we were we were very good friends. And as for uh, Delphine, she was uh, she was very um, she didn't want to mix with uh, anyone, but she was healthy. She is the. Most wonderful woman I've met. She, um, she helped me. She knew that I was, uh, I was pushed by this director and she helped me a lot. Very often, she came to me and she says, Danielle, I don't feel secure with this scene. Can you please help me? We're gonna rehearse a bit. And I know perfectly well, I knew perfectly well it was because I was not the, the one who was, who was ready for the, for the, for the role. I was not for this scene. And and I had to rehearse, and the director was not asking us to rehearse, so she was asking me to rehearse because of her, the, the, which is a very very kind way of of having a, 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 a because I was uh, you know I was just a starting actress at that uh, at that scene um, at that uh, because the two films I did before we it was not real like it was like a vacation <laughs> but this one was, was a real 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 film with with a lot of uh cont- de contrainte we had uh, a lot of uh, of things i had a lot of things to learn from that film and um i remember that the day uh she was not there when we had the fight but of course everyone went to her and tell told her what happened and the next day what she did is unbelievable she um we were having um light uh setting uh where we had to be standing up and f- in front of one another and just waiting for the the light to be put on, on our faces. And um, she, she decided to ask to, uh, to, to ask Harry to come close to us. Um, I I didn't talk to her and we we were not talking together. We were just, uh, she was filing her nails. I remember. And uh, she said, Harry, can you please come here? Of course, Harry came like, he was in love with this girl, it was unbelievable. And she says, "I want to tell you something. I've learned something from a very good uh, uh, director once. And he said, when and she was not looking at me, she was filing her nails. He said that when two actresses are very good, a director is totally, totally uh, out of order." <laughs> and and he couldn't believe what he heard because of course he she was telling him that we could do the film without him he got so he got so um but um, you know it is it, it, it's cruel in a way it's very cruel but uh, but he um he should have he shouldn't have done what he he's done to the uh, to actresses like us you shouldn't have, you shouldn't. So, but at the same time, you know, we took, uh, I took very seriously the way that I had to learn about, about the way a film was done. Well, a, a serious film was done. And, um, uh, and I've learned a lot, uh, because of him, because I had to overdo it. I had to, uh, uh, make sure that I was at the right place, the right moment, that I had the, the right la- lines and, uh, and, uh, the, the, and I was working really with everyone very, very, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, lay on him, you know, lay, uh, I I couldn't put my, uh, attention on him. So I had to uh, do it with the others. And, uh, and w- w- that's how it went. We, uh, we did it together. Like, it was not everyone acting for himself. It was everyone w- acting with everyone. It was very, very pleasant. For that, it was very pleasant.
1: So, when was the first time that you got to see the film all completed?
3: Um, I, I, I remember, it was in, in, in Quebec. Uh, I didn't see it before. I didn't see it in France. I didn't see it in Belgium also. Uh, about, uh, it, it, it takes about six months to, uh, to be put together and uh, I saw it in, in in Canada and I went uh, on a tour until and we um, we um, we did it was the first time we we went to New York to uh, for the premiere also it was off broadway but it was on broadway on broadway on, off broadway but uh, in the uh, surrounding of the broadway and we went to Sardis, which is in Quebec, in Quebec, in in, 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 in New York, when you uh, have a, a the premiere of a film, uh, in the uh, starting from the beginning of the, the filming business industry, we all went to Sardi's <laughs> to have the, the premiere. So uh, we had the, the Sardi's treatment also.
1: Did uh, daughters of darkness? Did what did that do for you? What did that do for your career?
3: Well, it it did uh, 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 one thing is that uh, f- from then they they saw that I could do uh, other things than uh, nudity and that's how I started uh, very very slowly um uh, getting to the uh the comedy business co- comedy film business because I uh, I started to do uh comedy right after yeah
1: How soon after did you do the Possession of Virginia
3: uh, yeah, also Jean Baudin is someone that is very well, um, uh, on, gee, uh regarded as a, a, a very good uh, director here in Quebec. And I did, of course, a film with Jean Baudin, with Daniel Pilon, uh, uh Daniel Pilon and, uh, et, um, Louise Marleau. It's a film that was supposed to be from the underworld, the, um, come on dit, uh the, the, that's also it's true it, it, i forgot about this film um, but but I, it was not a very very pleasant film to do also but it was it was i i did all my my um they took me on, dit, mon, i was hanged in a in a church and i did it myself <laughs> i was <laughs> yeah yeah i was hanged in a church uh for this uh, come do I did all my stunts myself in this film. It was very very pleasant. But uh, the the thing is that um, uh we were presented with a scenario and uh, there was a scene of course where there was ça s'appelle le diable parmi nous, ça s'appelle oh I have to f- I'm looking for everything now and I have the poster here. How does it call- how is it called now? The pact in French was le pact, I think.
1: I, the one and thing I see is, uh, the Diable parlé.
3: Le Diable est parmi nous, but it's, it was also called Le Pact. It all depends where it went. We filmed it as Le Pact, but then the directors, the directors that were making a lot of, mo- that did a lot of movies with Valerie and L'Initiation, that did produce this film, decided they decided that um uh the scenes the, uh, the scenes uh, the, where there was some nudity and there was a, the there was a shrine with uh, all kinds of things they decided to make this film known for these scenes and and they they did a, a, an editing that was completely different from uh, the scenario So Jean Baudin decided not, well, he signed the film because he said, I'm going to sign the film because I have to do this because of the actors, but I'm not... And he, he, he never talked about this film after. He, he, he took it off his CV, CVs, son CVs, Curriculum Vitae. He took it off completely, and he pretends that he didn't do it because, because the editing was not done the way he wanted, to, he wanted it to be. And it was not, the editing was not done the way we filmed it. So, uh, so he rejected the film totally. He rejected the film. He said, no, I don't want to be involved. And uh, I'm signing the film because of the comedian, because uh, we've worked together and their name is gonna, are going to be there, but I'm not going to, um, to, um, to uh, acknowledge the film because that's not what I did. After that, uh, Cinepix went into comedy also.
1: How was that transition for you to go from these horror films and sexy films to comedy?
3: I liked it better because when I was when when I was not in a film, I was uh, I became an actress in uh, in different uh, TV shows, and that's how I I uh, came into comedy. I I did a lot of um, shows where there was comedy, so uh, it was easy for me to go for. Actually, it was the one do that that were um, that were uh, asking me. Uh, to do the uh, TV shows that were doing the films after, they were the producers, so it was easy for that. Yeah.
1: So you talked about this being the fiftieth anniversary of Valerie. Um, that seems like it's keeping you busy. What else have you been working on lately?
3: I'm a painter, so I'm I'm doing a lot of uh, of uh, compositi. I'm presenting shortly 30, 30 of my uh, paintings in, uh, in an exposition. I'm doing a lot of exposition. And I write books. I, I just, I'm just writing my fifth book right now, and I'm doing a lot of um, shows. But uh, behind the but behind the scenes, I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to be very shortly uh, having some impersonators coming from France uh, into a show to present to the Casino de Montréal. And uh, I'm uh, traveling a lot to see shows around and and, and having them. Uh, Bring to, brought to Montreal. I have, uh, you know, I'm just having fun at my age now. <laughs> I'm not on TV. I'm I'm going to be uh, probably because uh, I was asked to do. <laughs> that's very funny. You're going to say, well, can, "Well, where can she come from?" Films and then go to this kind of uh, of, of show in, in in Quebec. That's the way it goes. But I might be um, the director of uh, of a decorating uh, series. Oh, very nice. <laughs> And construction and yeah, but I'm good in construction also. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I might be doing this. Uh, we're we're trying to sell it, and uh, they told me that it was a very good uh, idea. So I might have uh, to do this this summer. Oh, that's
1: great! I love shows like that.
3: Oh, the, the, well, the idea is not it's not too bad. Uh, it's uh, we decide. Well, there's a lot of shows showing Oh my. Beautiful backyard. Oh my beautiful living room. Whatever. The idea is very simple. When you go, you live in a big, huge house, and you have to go in a little one. What do you do with your your furniture? How do you, uh, you know, what do you get? What do you sell? What do you transform? What do you, uh, you know, you don't start from scrap. But the big, 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 big house coming to a very, very small house—you have to to work your way out to keep the pieces you want to, to get, and then maybe refresh them, maybe change the colors and things like that. It's a it's a very funny uh, way of uh, of uh, I, I'm, I've did a I've did a we did a, a show uh, not to be shown on TV, but to uh, present to the producers. A pilot. I did a pilot and they, 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 they fell on the, on the floors. And my God, that's so good. So I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. I just came from Paris. I went to see a show for four days just to see a show and uh, to know if, it, if I would be uh, able to uh, be in this show and I would. <laughs> so, uh, if they come to Quebec, uh, I'm going to be, um, the master of ceremony of the show. Uh, because I saw it in France, and it's very easy to do for me. It's easy to do, so it it would be fun. So, uh, I'm just doing things that I like. Uh, just doing things that it it is fun and uh, doesn't take too much time, and not uh, no boss. Me, I'm the boss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the boss, and I work with people that are that are working in the same way I, I do. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight anymore. <laughs> no way. That was the time <laughs> I did it, and that it was the that was the last time. And uh, but I like very much. It's it's terrible because of course uh, when you say this, it's it's shocking. But it, it's funny now. I I I feel it's funny now. I'm telling you it's funny i would uh, i would uh still kiss him if i see him so <laughs> there's, no, there's no problem with that i think that he uh just by uh being able to uh, say the story he, he doesn't look too good and he doesn't look too strong uh, that's enough he paid for it i guess <laughs> he paid and i remember i remember that uh Daniel Pilon uh that, that, that died not too long ago uh that did a lot of uh of uh, TV shows uh, t- TV TV um daily shows in the United States he was in Days of Our Lives and things like that um Daniel Pilon uh told me that he did a film with uh, Harry Cumel, uh the year after and uh, that he had exactly the same problem they had they had to they really had to uh, put him to his place at a certain point. That uh, oh, he told me that about uh, ten ten years after my film. So I guess that's not like uh, you told me, Danielle, that I would have problems with him. No, it. I I heard that he did a film with him. Uh, he had the same problem. But uh, he's he's a good, he's he's okay. Hey, he's trying to to do things and he's not secure and. Uh, it's not a it's not a show. It's not a kind of a work that you uh, you know exactly. Well, some of them yes, but you know exactly where to go when there's a a multiple situation that you have to solve. But uh, it's it's okay. It's okay. He's okay. He's okay. <laughs> and I'm okay too. <laughs> I'm okay too. That, that, that's, that's how the, the film but the film was really, really, really you know a very pleasant to do, very pleasant, even though we had to uh, work at night very late sometimes at night because of the of the light, you know we had to uh, we couldn't go um, on a daytime base, uh, it was very pleasant.
1: Thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful.
3: Okay. Thank you. Sorry for my English. It's not perfect, but uh, I've looked at my Your English words, is
1: way better than my Quebecois. <laughs>
3: okay. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, I, I, but you gave me the occasion of, of, of practicing a bit. That's okay. <laughs>
1: All right, we're back and we're talking about Daughters of Darkness. Kat, you've brought up the name Carmilla a few times. Can you tell me a little bit more about the whole Carmilla story?
4: Yeah, so Carmilla is a novella that was written. It predates Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26, 27 years. Written by an Irish writer, not French, like some people. who buy the French version of the book you know he was Irish (laughs) Sheridan Lafani he basically wrote this novella which was actually if you've seen Hammer Horrors The Vampire Lovers that's one of the most faithful adaptations of that book it's a short book but it's Basically you have um a young girl, she is an orphan, she lives out in this isolated gothic castle with her father who's very caring but she's very lonely and one day there's a coach crash outside and this girl and the person who's supposed to be her mother turn up and the mother says, oh, you know, will you take my daughter in, you know, because I need to get off somewhere and this girl being very lonely says to the father, please, you know, can we take her in? And what ensues is this very giddy love story where, you know, this girl becomes quickly obsessed with the new arrival. And at the same time, she starts to get ill, like a sort of anemia. She starts to have these bad dreams. And it turns out that Carmine is a vampire, partially based on Coleridge's poem Christabel Was one of the inspirations. It wasn't really adapted to film until, um, I mean, the first one is, is Dryer's Vampire, but it's a totally different interpretation of it. First sort of real interpretation is Vadim's Blood and Roses, but it's still quite underlooked in the vampire field, just because it's more to do with Dracula and these male kind of vampires. When the seventies come along, though, you had a bit of a, a little five year pool where everyone suddenly started making lesbian vampire films. And The Vampire Lovers, which was 1970, that I just mentioned, with Ingrid Pitt as Carmina, um, that was the kind of catalyst for that, because it was so commercially successful that Europe being Europe kind of (laughs) follows suit. John Roland was doing it slightly before that, though, with Rape of the Vampire, and he wasn't really inspired, but he was doing his own lesbian vampire stuff.
1: I really appreciate your book in that you recommended some films that I managed to take the time and watch before we talked today. So I had never seen Blood and Roses. I had never seen uh, The Velvet Vampire. I'm trying to remember. There was one other that I ended up watching. But it was just you managed to recommend so many films that I ended up really enjoying. And I don't think I would have seen had it not been for that.
4: Oh, that makes me so happy because one of the chapters, I wanted to contextualize Daughters of Darkness within what was this canon that appears in the early 70s just to show, you know, what it was inspired by and the similarities it had to certain other films, but also to argue why it's so unique. I think if you you know, there, there are certain tropes that evolve in the thing and I wanted to look at that particular section in film history just to say, you know, this is what was happening and this is the context of the other films because comparing it is when you get to understand just how unique and transgressive and powerful it is. And I think it does tend to get lumped into that whole wave of kind of Eurocult sexy but it's... and. Then people watch it expecting something more like, I don't know, Jess Franco's female vampire and the sex in it is quite limited really. And they come, they tend to walk away disappointed, which always. I think oh, <laughs> so I want everyone to love it as much as I do.
0: One thing this actually brought to mind, with and this is more on a literature end than a film end, but talking about themes of uh, sort of lesbianism and how you know you don't you, there's not as it's not as prevalent. Which cat, I'm glad you said. That, cause I think a lot of people just assume it, and it's like if you actually look at the incidents of, of of especially like pure lesbianism. Not just sort of like softcore kind of porn, (laughs) you know, uh, lesbianism. There's not very little of it. There's even less like homosexuality. Um, And it made me think of this vampire novel actually read years ago in high school. And I'm not going to name it because I do not want to give any promotion to this horrible (laughs) book. But this was how ridiculously like homophobic it was with the whole male fear of being usurped by women, because there was a lesbian vampire, but she couldn't turn. Like, the only way you could be turned into a vampire in this universe was not only being bitten by a male vampire, but he has to be inserted into you. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, dear. This was not advertised as (laughs) porn, either. This was totally, like, if you bought it and read the blurb, it looked like a gothic classic gothic horror vampire film set in the 1940s like in my mean, even right down to the very like the album like the cover could have been an album cover for like a band like London After Midnight or Attrition or somebody like that was <laughs> it looked very 90s goth which I was all about because I was a 90s goth but uh but it was I mean it, what was even funnier was that the male vampire it was super homophobic because he was turned against his will. So it just said, "You have this whole like fear of like, like I don't want the dick."
1: Right, penetration anxiety. <laughs> oh wow, my God,
0: I'm so so just. Mm. Let's just be glad that Hollywood or nobody else for that matter has adapted this this book, which I will not name. True gothic,
4: real traditional gothic is all about queer sexuality and outsiders and, you know, people tend to think of that era of fiction as being quite twee and restrained. And the one I always talk about is The Monk, which people are just fucking sick of me mentioning it. But it's like, do you just got necrophilia, incest, like satanic rituals? It's my, They've never been able to commit it to celluloid because it's just so bloody perverse and nuts. I mean, they've done adaptations, but none of them come close to Lewis's novel. And things like Carmilla, you know, talking about... I mean, it's not explicit, but they're still talking about lesbianism in a time when there was no context to talk about lesbianism. So, you know, when it's done wow, gothic can be so subversive and it's often misused by people who just tend to think, I'm not naming any films, just out of respect, but just think, oh, we'll just stick some castles and cobwebs and that makes it gothic. And what makes it truly gothic is subversion, transgression, queerness, you know all those wonderful subtexts that address certain social stratifications and a lot of class stuff in Gothic. It's brilliant. That's why I love it.
1: I remembered what the other movie was that um, you talked about, and I think you mentioned it earlier, which was uh, Anno Cambio Faccia." They Change Their Faces.
4: <gasps> oh, my God. I'm obsessed with that film, and I really wish somebody would put it on Blu-ray. It's just so unheard.
3: Of.
0: It's wonderful, isn't it? It is great. Have you seen it, Heather? I have not. No, that's that's on my list, though. I need to see that because I've seen the other two, uh, but I've not seen that one. Oh, my God. It is just so – talking of vampire films that
4: are in like, other vampire films, I mean, that one – and it's so unheard like i tell people but they're like oh my god no i've never heard of that and it's one the companies don't seem to want to release because it doesn't seem to have a cult following like i've mentioned it to various companies several times like you know you need to you need to release that bloody film because it's incredible um i'm so i'm glad it was that one mike
1: it was fantastic and that's one i will go back to again because my goodness just the level of acting in that the um, the woman with the no eyebrows who's just so incredibly spooky and yeah just this amazing metaphor for capitalism.
4: I think in the seventies, a lot of filmmakers, especially the ones that swayed more towards art house, were using the vampire film to comment on certain social satire. Or cultural changes. And that's why you have a kind of wave towards feminism in the, specifically in lesbian vampires. John Roland used it very effectively. Um, you know, Kummel did. Stephanie Rothman's Velvet Vampire has a lot of feminist connotations as well. And you also had people to go with a class angle who were addressing the things that were happening in society because you know in the early 70s there were recessions there were protests student protests there were a lot of protests in Italy against the industrialists you know the shit's just hitting the fan and you get a lot of films in in the 1970s specifically in Vampire Thirst 1979 the Australian one is another one that deals with class and entitlement you know so so much of that happening I think that's why I'm specifically drawn to that decade more than any other even things like Martin which is commenting on masculinity and sexuality you know and all those things Cronenberg's rabid there was just so
0: much invention in that one decade alone Absolutely. That's one of my favorite decades, too. Um, Also, like, there's really some fascinating commentary on class uh, in Paul Boris's Blood for Dracula, which I know, Kat, one of our favorite movies ever. It's so good. And, you know, especially because it doesn't, you know, it's so, God, I don't know. We could do a whole episode on that film. In fact, we may, right, Kat? We may. Yes, we may. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so. It's so, oh my God, that film is so bonkers. And But yeah, but you have, you know, I mean, that one really explores the character of Dracula as an aristocrat with, with commentary.
4: Oh, it's just so good. It's, and, and then you get certain historians who, you know, call things like Fresh for Frankenstein is one joke that goes on too long. Not naming that stuffy tweed a dawned historian, but you just think, do you really not get gothic? <laughs> Seeing as you specialize in it, you know, and the f- I think that's why I'm consistently drawn to it. Is because if you remove all the period, and I love all the period gaff, you know, I love Merchant Ivory films. I so just, you know, or BBC adaptations of Jane Austen things like that's like pornography to me. Or put in the costumes, and I'm like, you know, I'm there. But as far as Gothic's concerned, it's evergreen. You can adapt it to anything, to any time, to any place. There's so much context there that you can use to comment on things now. Stephen King, you know, people don't generally think of Stephen King as a, as a Gothic person, but he was using Gothic early on to comment on what was happening in America in the 70s in you know, so it can be, you know, it can be consistently changed and adapted. And I think that's why it's such a wonderful genre. If you move out of that mindset of Gothic has to be Bella Lugosi in a cape and a castle and little cobwebs and stuff. If you move beyond that and think of it as a pure concept. The, the You know, the, there's so much in there that you can adapt and come all understood
0: that. God, that is so brilliantly put, especially because like one of the things I love about King is the fact that like class because like so much, you know, his universe is working class. Like, it's lower middle class Americana. And, and like, with Martin, you know, I, I've often felt like, you know, part of, like, the great atmosphere of Martin is the fact that it's, like, it's in the Rust Belt. Like, it's basically in this very economically depressed area. Yeah. Where a kid like Martin, who, you know, more than, more than likely isn't really a vampire, but just this, you know, just sort of this very mixed up young man who's grown up with this family history of possible mental illness, abuse, and murder all said in an area.
4: Oh, Martin is just a massive. And the way I wrote an essay recently for Screen Magazine, the U.S. Screen Magazine, about Dawn of the Dead and spoke about how Romero was very good at adapting Gothic. And people often see him as, you know, coming along, and rejecting Gothic because he rejected the aesthetic. But he uses Gothic in class and sexuality in a way that's very in tune with the pure concept of the genre. I mean, Martin has... I mean, I see Carrie and Martin as two sides of the same coin because they both have this very distinctly American Gothic view on Puritanism, um, which is an American Gothic thing. You know, they're both of them. They're both similar characters and that they're outcasts and they're from these poor backgrounds, and it's just great. I think that whole era of new Gothic, especially the American Gothic, was just brilliant, the way people were looking at it and pulling it apart and remaking it. I don't think Stephen King gets enough recognition for it, and Romero definitely doesn't.
1: So, Kat, we talked about this a little bit before, but tell me more about your book. I know you don't have necessarily a release date, but who's putting it out? Where's the best place to order it? All that kind of stuff.
4: Oh, right. Well, it's coming out as part of the Devil's Advocate series, which is uh, put out by Auto Press in the UK. But they sell them through Columbia University in the US They're on Amazon as well. And it's part of a series that looks specifically at different horror films, like they've done Black Sunday. Emma Westwood just did a great one on the fly, actually. I know you had her on as a guest, didn't you, Mike, or well, you interviewed her? Yeah, so looking at different aspects of horror films, so it's part of that whole series. They're just monographs, you know, on one singular film. Alexandra Helen Nicholas did a great one on Suspiria. Um, and they're supposed to kind of, they're not, too academic they they look at things in a more serious way but not so serious that you lose the entire reading audience apart from about five (laughs) percent you know there's they're that bridge in between academic ideas but more accessible so people can grab pre-order them there isn't a publishing date yet because the originally it was going to be done last summer but i wanted to wait for harry and my publisher's very patient, and I did. I got Harry, who's very generous with his time, and I think the book is just all the more better for his input. Yeah, now I'm just waiting, because obviously other people have come in after me, and they're waiting for their books to be published, so you know, just have to be patient. But it's, it's coming this year sometime.
1: Well, after reading it, I can say Rondo's written all over it.
0: It deserves better than the Rondo. <laughs>
4: Don't take the piss now, (laughs)
0: Mike. This this book is too good for the (laughs) Rontos. Please leave this part in no i not bitter <laughs> so, so any listeners if you if you really love your favorite writers and artists just buy their stuff okay buy cat's book don't worry about the fucking Alex's ragas. masterpiece on suspiria which was just oh i read that book and i was
4: just felt so inadequate as a writer <laughs> Shit, didn't even get nominated until people kicked off so yeah <laughs> but i'm so glad you guys read it because you're the first two
1: what a privilege.
4: You're the first two people in the world, apart from my publisher, who've laid eyes on it. So um, Wow, that's fantastic.
0: That's a very much a huge honor. Thank you, Kat. No, I'm
4: glad, and it's wonderful to have the feedback, because obviously, when you're writing something, you don't know until it's actually out there in the wild, you know, how it's going to be kind of taken. And then you guys are my friends, so you have to be nice. <laughs>
1: All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. 1933, the depths of the Great
2: Depression. An army of homeless men roamed the land stealing rides on the railroads. They were nomads who lived by no law but their own. And dedicated to their destruction was the railroad man who stood between them and the trains. Hang on, for action adventure that roars like thunder. A hobo called A-Number One and a railroading man named Shaq meet in battle at breakneck speed in Emperor of the North. A number one, a man who lives by his wits. I'm trusting you, kid. Cover for me. Hey, you, come back here! He takes what he needs and goes where he wants and always travels first class. You confess sinner. The Lord is my tabernacle. And his ship is filled with gold. That's all for the holy gates. Hallelujah, brother! Day number one has been everywhere, but never on the number 19, Shaq's train, where nobody rides for free and lives. And next time I pick up an empty, I'm not going to have it burned. You never let it happen again. Never! Shaq's weapons a steel hammer, a length of chain, and he'll use them with pleasure if he catches any bomb on his train.
0: I did it. I rode your
2: damn train.
4: There's only one boy that's got the stuff to try
2: me. You ain't even on the list. The king of the hobos travels by rail, and he always travels alone. This time, a punk kid named Cigarette is going along for this the ride. So Gang! he tramp that sets foot on my train, I'd hold him out and shake him to death like a snake. <laughs> Hell, kid. The stars at night, I put them there. My road, kid, and I don't give lessons, and I don't take partners. Look, do exactly what I do. Nothing more. Don't like it. Just do it. The fast mail going through the junction at 710. That's 11 minutes. I'll be there in four. (laughs) Not at yard speed, you won't. I won't be going yard speed. I'm going to high ball. I'm not giving away another free ride. A number one loved the game, and he knew what had to be done. But the evil Shaq had a plan of his own. Hey, number one, to Portland on the 19th. But, but that Shaq's train. Marcus. Hey, number one! Hey, number one! <laughs> name is on the tower, I seen it. Northbound to Portland. Five dollars, he makes it all the way to Portland. Okay, okay, okay I'll handle money. Tell the telegraph operator to let the boys down the line in on it. Tell them Word in your. Word got team. up oh, and down okay. the line. The rebel was heading north on the 19th. Some of the men bet on a number one, but most of the money is on Shaq. Shaq! Your fight's over here. And now the game begins. For a number one, it's the most dangerous ride of his life. For Shaq, it may be the last. Lee Martin is a number one. Ernest Borgnine is Shaq. Face-to-face at breakneck speed in Emperor of the North. Emperor of the North. It's not a place. It's a prize.
1: That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Emperor of the North. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Heather. Heather, what is the latest with you?
0: As a matter of fact, this ties in beautifully because... uh, Some of you may know, Kat and I have a podcast together called Hell's Bells, and we have recorded a new episode, and uh, we will hopefully have that live uh, very soon, but we delve into the world of... um, music videos that either are or at the time they were released viewed as problematic and we're very excited about that also i just recorded a new episode of love that album podcast with maurice uh, or Morris Berzinski. mike am i saying that right i always botch
1: i thought that i said it right last time you're not trapping me again oh
0: no <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike, you're too very good to me, very patient. <laughs> but uh, but I love Morris. Of course, Morris and I connected on this show with the Charlie Verrick episode, but we get to talk about the Kinks, Lola versus the Power Man and the Money Go Round, uh, part one. And which is a great album, and it's going to be a lot of fun. On the writing front, I'm I'm working on a series of articles uh, delving into the discography of the great American theatrical rock band, The Tubes, for DiabolicMagazine.com. And, uh, of course, you can keep up with me also on social media and Mondroheather.com.
1: And, Kat, how long ago was the Daughters of Darkness book finished? Because I'm sure you've done a whole hell of a lot of stuff since then.
4: Yeah, like I've started about 500 books since <laughs> 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 I finished it last September, I think. Yeah. And, um, and since then I've started my book on Andre Zhuowski and I've got some amazing interviews booked for that very soon, which I'm very nervous about and other things I've been doing, I can't wait for the next episode of Hell's Bows because it's just complete madness. And I'm not sure whether people are either going to take it as genius or they're just going to think like if they lost their minds, but we had so much fun doing it. And I've been slowly editing the file because it's obviously needs to be synced to these videos and, um and just so much laughing. <laughs> so, the whole thing is just laughing and uh you know, Some very odd things in that podcast, but I'm so proud of it. And if it works, we're going to do more kind of esoteric, weird experimentations in media. (laughs) Yes, that's what I've really been doing. I just did a commentary on Sweet Charity, Bob Fosse film, which I've been bursting to talk about. Because I just love that film and I am the charity character. So it was like one of those projects that was really rewarding. Um. And that's about it, really.
1: Do you get into a lot of dance-offs with uh, Sammy Davis Jr.?
4: Sadly not. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm so glad because they're doing it in 4K, and they're really going. They've got the different version. I talked over the happy ending version, which isn't my particular favorite, but obviously it meant I could talk about the happy ending which was quite satisfying. But it's not often that you can get a film that runs nearly two and a half hours and get to the end of a track and still feel like you there were other things you could have said. Um, and there were parts of it where I was deliberately having to slow myself down because there was just so much stuff I wanted to get into it. And I just started to give up in the end I thought, I'll be talking like an auctioneer. <laughs> Um, Oh, and I'm also doing Naked Alibi, which is a Gloria Graham noir that's never had a Blu-ray release or a DVD release. And um, yeah, lots of lip action in that one as well. Obsessed with the fact that her lips don't move.
1: Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. <music>